He might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never answer the- I'm bored. Wait! Welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking, you must be good with your hands. We're talking, I feel a little curious myself. And we're talking, everyone knows your kind can't be trusted. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking, she's a lady. Whoa, 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 (laughs) she's a lady. A choice end song. Oh my god. I Everyone, we are discussing The Wachowskis Bound, a seminal entry in queer cinema history. Um, uh, is it seminal considering the connotation oh, of that? Ovenal. Ovenal. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's the winter Ovester trace. <laughs> but no, I, honestly, I chose that for my thing because... I always forget every time I watch this movie how happy it makes me and how playful mm-hmm. and like delightful it is. And to close out the movie on that needle drop, it's just like, I guess maybe by now it's kind of cliche, but it's like, it's just so fucking fun, just like this movie is. <laughs> Which is wild because, yeah, this movie has a comedic streak to it that I have definitely forgotten every time I watch it, aka the three times I've watched this. But, um, yeah, I mean, otherwise this movie could be considered so dark and so heavy in a lot of ways like it's a really joyous way to end a movie well it's interesting because yeah it is dark and it's serious it's a romance it's erotic because oh yes everyone this is our third week of erotic thrillers welcome to mm-hmm. bound um but you know going through um there was a blu-ray release in uh, 2018 from olive's releasing and they have this featurette with two film professors where they basically like there's a whole section where they talk about how there's a camp sensibility to this film where it's right. not far off from they I'm not name dropping this. They name dropped this. The films of John Waters. <laughs> really? Yeah. That is surprising to me because I feel like all I ever hear is, oh, this is uh, the Wachowski's take on the Cohen's blood symbol. Yep. And I'm like, yes, obviously. But also, that's didactic and very easy. Well, I think it's just the time period, right? Like, if it's yeah. like, oh, Tarantino. Well, Pulp Fiction came out a year before. Of course, they're mm-hmm. going to say Pulp Fiction. But whatever Uh, okay so before (laughs) before we get too much into this uh let's bring in our guest who's waiting in the wings all right everyone she is the creative director of cinema salem the festival director of salem horror fest you may also remember her from our previous episodes on copycat and perdita durango please welcome kay lynch for me podcasting has always been a lot like sex two people (laughs) who want the same thing they get in a room, they talk about it, they start to plan. It's kind of like flirting. It's kind of like foreplay, because the more they talk about it, the wetter they the get. The wetter they get. The only difference is I can fuck someone I've just met, but the podcast, I need to know someone like you two, like I know myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you just won that game. Yeah. It's good to be back. <laughs> uh, welcome back. And welcome to Bound. Also, what a fun movie to talk about. Um, oh my gosh, the hottest movie ever made. Well, that's so okay. Hot. Joe messaged me last night and was like, "Their so, their chemistry is amazing." And I was like, "Yeah, when they're just speaking to each other in a fucking room with with their clothes on, it's still the mm-hmm. hottest thing I've ever seen." Oh, absolutely. They just they, they their connection is so intense, and they're still friends to this day. Like I think there's mm-hmm. just like, right. this sisterhood between them that's so sweet and. 
I don't know. It's just, it's so steamy. And Kay, I'm curious. So when did you first see this? Like, is this something you came around to recently? Uh, gosh, no, I, I saw it back when I worked at Blockbuster many, many years ago oh, and have shit. seen it several times over the years. And I just, every time I watch it, I fall more and more in love with it because it really it's a perfect film. It is so tightly constructed, like every mm-hmm. shot, you know, all the lines in the script, the banter is, is ripped right from the 1940s and film noir, the art direction. And they invented like rigs and shit to get, you know, a lot of like the sex scene is like super complicated, but yeah. it, mm-hmm. the way it was made, but it is extremely intimate. And it's just, I think it's a masterpiece, honestly. And it was the Wachowski sisters first film yes and we'll have lots to talk about that too and of course also where what the mindset was about these two at the time presumably straight cisgender men making a a lesbian film like this Mm -hmm. i have a lot to say about that yeah i'm I'm sure we will have plenty to say (laughs) um yeah though this was a college watch for me i I, i'd always heard about it as oh that lesbian movie like and so i I do think describing it like that does it a disservice because while yes this is a very queer film it's explicitly queer the sex scene we have is one of the hottest scenes i've ever seen like in a non-porn related film honestly it's Mm -hmm. hotter than some porn related films that i've seen um but it's just so much more than that like it is like as i said earlier this like wildly funny romantic erotic like heist caper film and it's just so fun and i was never expecting that the first time i watched it totally i mean the the funny thing for me was i always heard about it by reputation and i didn't see this until 2019 trace when you literally introduced this to Mm -hmm. me when i came down to fantastic fest for our live show yeah Mm -hmm. and what, what what were your first impressions of it when you did see it It was interesting because I'm one of those people who is very easily overhyped on film. So I was very trepidatious that it wasn't going to live up to its reputation. And yet at the end of the day, I'm I'm in full agreement with everything Kay said. This thing is a masterpiece. It is so well crafted. Like, it's not surprising to me that the Wachowskis have gone on to deliver these really technically accomplished films that have broken new ground cinematically. And I think this also, to me, like, I'm I'm a big fan of their work with Sensate, and I think that this anticipates a lot of the direction narratively that they will go in as they become more in tune with who they are as individuals not just as filmmakers yeah i mean this was basically an audition piece for them because i mean look they they did this and then their next film is literally the matrix um but like they walked in every day with like a complete shot list there was very little improv done on this film like it was very technically proficient uh the filming process was but at the same time it sounds like everyone had a really fun time making this movie yeah one of the reasons why it is so meticulous is because they had such a hard time casting it. There was mm-hmm, so right. many, they went through so many potential actresses and whose management kept telling them, don't do this film. If you play a of lesbian, course. it will ruin your career. So it took them yeah. a long time to finally get a cast. So in the time that they were trying to figure it out, not even you know wondering if it was either, even ever going to get made, they spent that time rewriting and planning mm-hmm. it out. And they had, have a background in comic books and so they storyboarded 
every aspect of this. So they'd be on the set and the actors like Jed Fertilli, Joe Pent- Pentaleono, they would like want to improv. But they're like, no, you can't say that. I need you to say <laughs> this exact line because three <laughs> scenes from now... <laughs> It won't make sense. And yeah, it's just brilliant. It's funny that you mentioned they were into comic books because a big influence too on the style of this film was Frank Miller's Sin City graphic novels. And I I think you can see that a lot, especially in the scenes with the bathroom where it's like a white palette and then it's, you know, oh, you get a streak of red in there whenever someone bleeds, which is Mm -hmm. often in that bathroom. (laughs) Yeah. It's all it's all black, you know. So obviously, this is a '90s film, so it's in full color, but it's made to reflect the film noir style of the '40s. Yeah. And so the color palette still is all black and white. You have the black and white tie, mm-hmm. you have the black and white outfits, and the in contrast with the red, the red in Violet's dress, the red in Caesar's tie, the red in the paneling of the wall. The only other color that really shows up is green. The color mm-hmm. of money. I think even too, like the architecture, and and specifically also the design of like the the wallpaper and stuff. Like it's all it's very Art Deco. Yeah, right. Like, and mm-hmm. that makes sense though because film noir, like the the classic film noir, took a lot of inspiration from German expressionism, and I think you can see that in a lot of the the shots here. But okay, well, start, starting with let's start with film noir. So. <laughs> I made my thoughts on it clear. I'm not an expert on it. I think we talked about it quite a bit in our episode on The Seventh Victim. Maybe even Cat People a little bit. I'm not. One of the two, most likely. Yeah. Most likely. I mean, they're okay. both Luton, and, and of that time, his style helped codify the film noir visual aesthetic. Right. And so, I mean, again, everyone, just a really quick primer. You know, film noir is a term that describes a stylish Hollywood crime drama, um, particularly those that emphasize cynical attitudes and motivations. And the cynical parts really important for some reason. Well, I'll tell you why. But <laughs> uh, the 1940s and 50s are, are generally regarded as the classic period of American film noir, uh, their heyday, if you will. So the film noir of this era is associated with a low-key black and white visual style, again, roots in German expressionist cinematography. Uh, many of the prototypical stories and much of the attitude of classic film noir derive from the hard-boiled school of crime fiction that emerged in the United States during the Great Depression. So, you know, 1944's Murder My Sweet, 1946's The Killers, 47's Kiss of Death. This is all post-World War II, and in the country at this time, masculinity was very threatened and diminished. Uh, We as a country were adjusting to this new world, not doing very well, and there was danger everywhere, especially from women, which is why you see the femme fatale archetype um, in the film noirs. That's kind of what drove this era of film noir uh, until it ended with Orson Welles' 1958 film Touch of Evil, which uh, sort of emerged out of noir and started turning into something else. But it's generally considered to be the last of the uh, of the classic film noirs. I just wanted to jump in about gender roles. So the reason why uh, masculinity was quote, you know quote under attack um, following the the war was because while the men were out fighting the war, the woman had to step up and fill in a lot of the traditionally male-dominated um, industries and mm-hmm. they cult, you know just started to get a taste of this freedom and, and this agency and we're starting to really embrace it and so when the men came back there was this like <laughs> expectation they're like well we're back now we want our jobs back and the women were like yeah. well 
kind of like this. So, so women were having this really power, this moment of power. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that's what's reflected in the femme fatale tropes. Well, because you have men making all these movies too. <laughs> that, yeah, no, and, it's and, not as simple uh, as that. And they're terrified. They're terrified. <laughs> all the characters are terrified of these, the, you know, the female power. It's really mm-hmm. great. But wait, Joe, what were you saying, though? It's not as simple as that? No, because, I mean, that that inherently suggests that men are all scared of women. Oh, as sure. though I, I think it's more people are trying to capture the culture at large, what's actually happening. So if they see that there's this undercurrent or this paranoia or this mistrust, right? Like, the films will always end up reflecting that, dis- like, regardless of who's actually making the films. If they're in tune with what's going on, then mm-hmm. they're going to start to pick up on that and build it into scripts and finished products i just didn't want to let you off the hook that it's like oh well of course men are making these movies so they're scared of women like that's too broad a generalization no please i'm glad you did it push back like by all means (laughs) well yeah and some some of these filmmakers are deliberately commenting on that as well completely aware of what was going on Mm -hmm. and um and willfully and sometimes gleefully giving the woman the power and agency Mm -hmm. in these films well, so noir kind of died down for a bit, though. So the period of the late 50s and early 60s was a period of major upheaval in Hollywood. Um, the city was falling apart and rebuilding itself. Independent productions really picked up. Uh, people like Francis Ford Coppola were coming out of film school and making movies. And so now directors that might reference genres, um, but they didn't necessarily make genre films. Uh, so they wanted to move beyond generic structures to make really personal films. The other things happening during this period were the civil rights movement. So around the time Chinatown comes out in 1974, there's a backlash to those movements. And on the political left, there's kind of a dismay around that backlash. So a lot of the films coming out around that time are about coming to terms with the backlash, with the upheaval in the USA at large, uh, that might lead to a return in cinema that was a deeply cynical genre. The film noir. This brings us into the 90s, which coincided with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. So you start seeing film noir make a return. But again, it's not black and white. It's not actual quote unquote film noir, which I feel like that's the only genre where it's like it has to be black and white (laughs) to be considered like a certain genre. Well, I I think it's an embodiment of all the things you're talking about. So you mentioned there's cynicism, there's mm-hmm. a change in gender roles, but then there's also technical aspects like chiaroscuro lighting and that kind of thing. Well, and so, you know, we have like 1990s The Grifters, 1993's Red Rock West, 1995's Devil in a Blue Dress. And these are all what we're calling a neo-noir nowadays. And neo-noir plays with noir, but in order to really be something different. It needs to play with things to make it its own thing. And the interesting thing is that neo-noir was a genre that was kind of created, um, whereas noir just kind of happened, if that... I'm not sure that I'm making a distinction of that really well, but like neo-noir was created <laughs> spe- specifically in conversation with noir. Yeah, so film noir, it's important to note that, and you're, you were getting at this, Trace, that it was not a genre... When they were making these films, noir was not a genre that anyone was aware that they were making the term film noir came about after the series those series of films by french critics who are looking Mm -hmm. at the american films at that time and going huh there's something going on here there's there's a trend there (laughs) right all this dark contrast shadows ever so moody and looking to like desperately trying to get some money and the woman you know they just started noticing a lot of these co you know these um threads and it's the critics the the french critics who dubbed it film noir as an 
as a reflection. And so in the 90s, the neo-noir was deliberate. It was the first time they're making these movies with film noir as a visual language codified. Mm-hmm. And so like, they got to play with race or sexuality, which is something that actual noir films couldn't do because the production code existed. And when you're making those films at that time, you know, you could not have a film character literally get away with murder or be seen sharing a bed with anyone but a spouse. So what you find in a neo-noir is a preoccupation with an attempt to reclaim masculinity that's been too diminished, but it inverts the scale of the original film noir. So you end up with like an equally deranged universe, but now it has um, metaphorical air quotes around it. It kind of winks at you. It's playing with what film noir took very seriously. I, I, it's got this like subversive humor that is Re- yes. You know that that reminds me of like Tales from the Crypt episode. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's sort of this like you know, there's this irony that like you kind of, this like very cryptic karma that comes and bites you in the end when you are driven by like lust and greed. And it, it, one of the references that the Wachowskis had told specifically Joe Pantoliano to watch the the treasure of um, Sierra Madre. And to look at Humphrey Bogart's character, and that is very much like a Tales from the Crypt-like story of of someone just driven mad by greed. And so his performance in this film, particularly towards the end when he's like ransacking um, Johnny's up, you know, house to try mm-hmm. to find the cash, he's just like dwindling in madness. Um, that is part of that sort of like sardonic humor and you see a lot of that in bound so i mean even moving into bound and joe i think this is interesting that we're talking about oh like how do the wachowskis take a noir and like make it their own subvert the tropes when we quite literally had that conversation last week with a very different type of director subverting Mm -hmm. noir tropes with a simple favor yeah so into bound you know bound obviously plays the idea of a femme fatale Uh, we've got the dupe of a man the sort of pathetic excuse of a man who's easily manipulated by a woman's sexuality but the wachowski is what they did with this screenplay was create women that you don't find in film noir. Uh, film fatales were sexual, they were desirable, but they weren't desiring. They desired money, but their own sexual desire was rarely relevant. Uh, their sexuality was more of a performance as well, a tool. So part of the conceit for the audience is that these women in this film were actually kind and wonderful. They don't do what would happen in the old version of noir. They don't turn on each other. They uh, don't have some kind of ulterior motive beyond what you're led to expect they don't disappoint you or each other similarly even violet's role as the gangster's mall you know the character that is just with the gangster is a side piece she would normally be like a stupid person because she's with the gangster but she's actually one of the smartest people in the film and so that's already a subversion of that character archetype but okay going into how this actually got made because uh, making a lesbian movie in 1985 was kind of um a big deal <laughs> especially at this budget i mean there was like you know it was it was a very interesting time for queer cinema in the 90s when it came down to like the independent level and this film kind of straddles independent into mainstream you know it was it was a big mm-hmm. budget for what it was but it was the biggest most notable mainstream lesbian depiction of a lesbian relationship in cinema until then well and that's a thing so just to give y'all like a picture portrait of what lesbian cinema was like in 1995 
25. So I'm pulling a piece um, from Guinevere Turner's article, We Know How This Ends. And Guinevere Turner, if you don't know, she's the woman who co-wrote American Psycho and the notorious Betty Page. Oh, right. Yeah. She's also like a famous lesbian. She's had roles on The L Word, things like that. But um, this, uh, what she says is, when Bound came out in 1996, lesbians were nothing short of delirious with excitement. To really understand why, let's remind ourselves what we've been served up to that point. In 1991, we had Thelma and Louise. No, they were not lovers, but somehow they felt like ours. They were kick-ass. They were living on the edge, and then they died. Next up was Fried Green Tomatoes, where our well-trained lesbo brains could certainly fill in the blanks. Obviously, they were in love. We didn't need, like, a sex scene to know that, but would have killed for one. 1992 brings us basic instinct, uh, and we were titillated and protesting all at once. Then in 1993, Katie Lang was on the cover of Vanity Fair and New York Magazine, uh, coined the term lesbian chic. Rose Trash and I were in the middle of making Go Fish in 1994, but not to be chic. We just were trying to uh, see ourselves on the big screen. A spate of other indie lesbian films followed, including The Incredibly True Adventures of Two Girls in Love in 1995, as well as 1996's The Watermelon Woman and 1995's When Night is Falling. And we ate them all up. And then along came Bound, a mainstream movie with lesbian characters. Our eyes narrowed to suspicious slits, but of course, we watched. So, it sounds like it was easier for the Wachowskis to get this film greenlit, as opposed to, as you said, Kay, getting the film cast. So, they had just gotten off a job working as screenwriters on Assassins, Richard Donner's 1995 action film starring Antonio Banderas and Sylvester Stallone. And they had written this film while under contract with famed movie producer Dino De Laurentiis. And unfortunately for them, their script for Assassins was tinkered with and rewritten to the point where they weren't really happy with it. So, they wanted to go off and direct their own movie and ideally have more more creative control in the final product. They were still under contract with De Laurentiis, so they had to stick with him. They wrote the script for Assassins, and Dino De Laurentiis bought it for $250,000. And at the time, they were like, because they were painting houses or like doing construction. Yeah, that's money. Construction, yeah. Yeah, they were like, oh my God, we're rich. Like, we can retire now. Like, it was huge money for them. A week later in Variety, it, um, there was a headline that said that Dino De Laurentiis then sold that script to Warner Brothers for two and a half million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> two and a oh, half million. So they God. were like, yeah. So when Dino came back to them and was like, what else you got? They're like, yeah, we're going to do things a little different this time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we so learned the hard way. That's yeah. the thing, you know, I mean, they were trying to get someone to finance this, but they were under contract by De Laurentiis and apparently a lot of people so a lot of studios that took it to were like well if you make Corky a man we'll we'll finance this but we're not sure. doing it with two women and they were like well why the like the whole point of neo-noir is to subvert the tropes so no <laughs> we're gonna make it with two women <laughs> literally we've seen this with heterosexual couples a billion times why would you why would you just remake that movie well, looking back on this film uh, through a trans lens, knowing that the Wachowskis have since transitioned and been living out, it's really interesting to see how they play with gender roles this time. Because in a way, it is between a heterosexual couple. I mean, it definitely wears its lesbian cred on its sleeve. But Corky is playing an extremely masculine character and her inspiration for the role were classic actors like Marlon Brando, Montgomery Clift, uh, Robert Mitchum. And so it's just, I, it's just so interesting that it's like, yes, these are two women, but, but also, Gina is playing the masculine role. And we can talk about this more when we get to the actual relationship of the sex scene, but it's also like the, uh, the aggressor in the relationship is the feminine one, not the butcher, yes. which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm, femme top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> 
Indeed. But yeah, seeing film noir as a genre within which they could tell it contains story and twist conventions, um, they describe Billy Wilder as a big influence. Uh, Billy Wilder, of course, being the director of films like Double Indemnity and The Lost Weekend. But he also directed the Marilyn Monroe gender-bending classic Some Like It Hot. So mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. <laughs> that is, I didn't consider that. But they write the script. Uh, and when executives at some studios, you know, they were like, no, we're not going to do this. Um, De Laurentiis, apparently all he needed, like he was like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Violet's a woman? Yeah. And Corky's a woman. Yes. Done. Six million dollars. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be so hot. Lesbians. Yeah. Well, that's actually a really key element, too, to, like, the the depiction of lesbians in media at the time is that um, on the the underground, it was a lot of people just trying to... you know see themselves on screen as real people right but in the mainstream it was lesbianism was always eroticized and there was a big softcore market in the 90s that was of course um that was just very exploited to the tilt and when they did this scene in the the lesbian bar they actually filmed at a, a real san francisco lesbian bar with actual lesbians the bartender mm-hmm. was susie bright who's a very famous writer and sex educator and so when they show the dailies to Dito De Laurentiis, he's like, we have a problem. They're like, what? They're like, these are not lesbians. And they're like, no, they're not actually. Hot. Yeah. Yeah. They were like, no, these are literally lesbians. This is, a li- this is an mm-hmm. actual lesbian bar. And he goes, no, I'll show you. He's, he sent them a binder of these like models. And they're right. like, these are lesbians. And so they were, they're like, we have to redo the scene. And to their credit, this is like their second day of work. And they said, if we if no. you redo this scene, we then you're gonna have to fire us. And so they yeah. like really stuck it, and um, thank God. Well, that that's the thing because I mean I, I won't like I'm not pulling any more from that Gwyneth Turner article, but like she goes on to basically kind of talk about how I I liked Bound but begrudgingly because I was so conflicted with the idea that these two again at the time straight cisgender men had gotten so many things right about our culture (laughs) about our sex lives and so i liked it but it really calls into mind like okay what about representation like what uh, we have this kind of niche subculture of film that now straight cisgender men are coming into and making films about it and now they're getting it right what the fuck am i supposed (laughs) to think about that But apparently, as you mentioned, Kay, you know, Susie Bright, she wasn't just there, uh, you know, manning the bar in this scene. You know, she ended up being asked to consult on the sex scenes and on the staging and the Mm -hmm. presentation of the lesbian bar. So I think part of the part of the takeaway that I would say, you know, obviously, when you fold in the Wachowski sisters transness, maybe they were already on to something. But I think it's a testament to why you should also be consulting with the community if you are not an identifying member at the time. Well, and I think too, we can put a pin in the trans conversation in like until maybe like later in the film. But I do want to point out that uh, one of them was actually in the middle of transitioning while they were filming this. It was just like it was hush hush. It was hush hush. Like, like, Like she wouldn't let anyone take her pictures like it was like a, it was like a thing where it's like if you were in the know you knew but i feel like people think oh yeah they can't they, they, they were transitioning in like 2012 it's like no it was a it started much earlier than that mm. <laughs> yeah well in fact the inspiration for this film was uh i think it was lily was literally at the cinema watching silence of the lambs and she Ooh. left during that scene went to the bathroom and cried and she just she when she recalled this, she was like, I just kept thinking, like, name one film where the queers have a happy ending. 
and she mm. couldn't think of a film. And so it was like in that moment, she was like, I'm going to make that movie. And it's just, it's, it's just so nice. But like, so they, at least Lily was aware of her gender identity then early on. And it was a long process to come out. But also, um, Jennifer Tilly and Gina are cis heterosexual women so mm-hmm. they in it'll like the fact that they got it right as well is like right. so it's a huge testament i think to joe's point susie bright and the contribution that she brought to this film mm-hmm. well but that's the thing too though because a lot of people so when they were like oh my god you guys that's right a lot of them did credit susie bright with that but of course now people look back and they're like oh there actually were two women directing this film <laughs> right mm-hmm. yeah. um right. okay so moving on to the casting though so the as you said Kay, the wachowskis did struggle to cast the roles of Violet and, Cor- and Corky, seemingly because of the lesbian content of the film. A few actresses or a few of their agents were interested in this film. Mm-hmm. That being said, though, they had actually secured Linda Hamilton to play the role Ooh. of Violet. Violet! Wait. That's so crazy! Violet? That No, that's not the one you would cast her for? So, but, but, okay, but that's the thing, though. So I think at this time, like, you know, of course, Linda Hamilton is famous at this point for Terminator 2, but Terminator 2 was her playing against type because she was playing right. the exact opposite of that type in the Terminator. So again, I think she was going to go back into playing more effeminate roles. So they did want her for Corky, but she wanted Violet. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Which is the same as Jennifer Tilly. <laughs> well, that's okay. So that's the thing. So they supposedly sought out Jennifer Tilly to play Corky because and Jennifer Tilly wanted to play Corky because at this point she had been Oscar nominated for her role in Woody Allen's Bullets Over Broadway, um, which by the way, I still have not seen, but I'm dying to see it just because I want to see what her Oscar nomination was for. But she was only getting offered sex pot roles and the other woman. So she wanted to play the butcher Corky character. Right. So. Yes, they actually wanted Hamilton to play Corky and Tilly for Violet, and both actresses when you want to stretch and play against type. And apparently, like uh, I think Lana Wachowski was like, "Oh my God, you actresses, why do you want to keep stretching? Just, just do, just play the roles we want you to play." <laughs> <laughs> Do what we say. (laughs) So Hamilton eventually, though, fell out, uh, supposedly because of creative differences. And so they bring in Rosanna Arquette to play Violet. At this point, Tilly is still on for Corky. But then Rosanna Arquette had to drop out because there was some TV pilot commitment. And so then, apparently at this time, the Wachowskis changed their minds and told Tilly, hey, we want you for Violet. And she goes, no, absolutely not. Corky or nothing. I don't want to do another sex pot role. I want to play something that's just uh, different for me. So... As for Gina Gershon, her agent sent her the script but didn't want her to do it because she had just played a quote-unquote bisexual in a recent film called Showgirls. Yes. Basically, like, she had gone through – she was like, no, I'm going to do this. And they were like, no, you really can't do this. And she goes, okay, well, you know what? I'm leaving. So she left her management um, because she was also like, they told me Showgirls was going to be this thing, this thing, this thing, and it was not that. So why would I trust them when they're telling me not to do this thing? So – Hmm. Right. And she was like, she's like, I need a role I can prove I can I, I can act. I mean, she's, yes. she's she walks away from Showgirls unscathed, but I think mm-hmm. she was she I think she was ahead of everyone else of how the movie was going to be perceived. And so right. she's like, I need I'm gonna have to redeem myself. <laughs> well, but I think it's just even like even as 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 we say good, and she she knew what movie she was in, I think, when she was acting, but even just proximity to the film was kind of dangerous at the time. Sure. 
Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So they get Gershon and they they tell they tell Tilly. They're like, okay, hey, we have Gina Gershon. She's gonna be here, um, but she's open to playing either Corky or Violet. This is a lie. Um, but why don't you come in and like we'll do a, a chemistry test with you? So they fly them to like Vancouver or something. And when Tilly shows up, she walks into this bar where they're. I guess a hotel bar where they're at. And Gershon is already talking as if she's already playing Corky. Uh, she got an all of her ear piercings. She went out to lesbian bars to try out some of the pickup lines that were in the script. <laughs> And even told the witch house is, hey, we've got to switch some of these out because they're not working. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tilly arrives. And what she had done was she had already done her hair in the style that she thought Corky should look. And she felt duped because literally she walks in and Gina Gershon points at her and goes, that's the hair Corky should have. Oh, no. But so immediately Jennifer Tilly is like, I don't like this bitch. She's taking my part. This is not fair. And she goes, oh, I have a headache and goes upstairs to her room. (laughs) 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 so a few days go by and basically tilly's manager calls her and is like hey are you gonna do this or not because if not they're gonna move on and she goes uh fine i'll do violet she found out (laughs) later the wachowskis never wanted her for corky they only wanted her for violet and they were playing her the entire fucking time oh no Well, thankfully now she she's a huge champion of the film now like do you see her talk about this movie she loves this movie so thank god (laughs) Well, and again, like uh, this Blu-ray was came out in 2018. They've got new interviews with Tilly and Gershon, but the the commentary on the film, which features both Wachowskis, Susan Bright, and the cinematographer, oh, um, wow. maybe it's the editor, and Tilly and Gershon, but they're talking about Laserdisc because they're unfamiliar with the concept of commentary. So this was done in the 90s. <laughs> oh, wow. And they were both late. Jennifer Tilly came in halfway through and then Gina came. and then- <laughs> Like the last 30. But it, it is a really good commentary, though. I will say that. Yeah. Okay. So Bound was filmed over a 38-day period in Santa Monica, California. Uh, the Wachowskis... Okay. Th- this is also really fun. The Wachowskis' original director of photography resigned, claiming that he could not film with the limited budget available, nor did he know oh. anyone else who would be willing to work so cheaply okay the guy they found to replace this guy was bill pope who quote unquote knew a bunch of cheap guys who'd be willing to work with him on the budget now here's the thing he came from the school of sam raimi shooting films like oh. dark man and army of darkness and literally when de Laurentiis told the wachowskis they were like oh yeah he just shot army of darkness and they were like army of darkness get him Get him, get him, get him. And I think you can see that in some of the camera work here. Um, Absolutely. There's a shot where we're following a phone cord, like, Mm -hmm. to the wall. But then there's, like, a knot and a loop in it, and the camera does the loop. It follows the loop. Yes! (laughs) I love that moment. (laughs) It's so stylish. Well, and, and so it should not come as a surprise, then, that this guy would also go on to work with Edgar Wright on films like The World's End, Scott Pilgrim, and Baby Driver. Okay. Well, yeah. and also the Matrix, where there's yeah, a yeah, lot of and the Matrix. Oh, yeah, just that little t- one. Yeah. But there's like you know, there's not bullet time per se, but there's there's like slow mo techniques that are rem- you now that are like the building blocks of what bullet time would become. With very few, if any, digital effects too. That's the big difference between this and the Matrix. Um, obviously, the Matrix is more showy, but I think that the Bound is very showy in more subtle ways. Well, sometimes because there's mm-hmm. a part where they, when they kill Gino and he's doing that fall on the ground, where I'm like, how did they shoot this? Yeah. <laughs> mm. It's yeah, they built they had a build because he's he's the older gentleman, and they were like, mm-hmm. absolutely not. He, this man cannot fall on the ground. <laughs> He'll, he won't get back up. <laughs> We don't want to kill an actor. <laughs> yeah, so they they like invented they put together this rig and basically lowered him <laughs> on the on this thing, this mechanical Amazing. thing that they 
Yeah, it's really brilliant. It's incredible. And and I think only someone who worked on like the Evil Dead films <laughs> in the early days could could envision, you know, how to how to maximize minimum resources. A hundred percent. Because that's a long shoot for six million, too. Like I was expecting you to say twenty days, Trace. No, no, no. And I I don't I don't know if they went over schedule or not, but I mean they got it done. I, maybe having just like the two apartments was uh, was beneficial for them too. Right. That's true. It's uh, basically a single location. Mm-hmm. So before we get to the release, Bound was rated by the MPAA uh, oh, as boy. R. Ori- so originally it did not get an R rating, but they had, they had to cut some scenes. So it was R for strong sexuality, violence, and language. But they basically had to cut 13 seconds of footage out to get the R rating. So, of course, the, the Blu-ray has both theatrical and unrated cuts. Um, basically, the difference is uh, their first sexual encounter when they're caught by Caesar on the couch. Um, there's an additional shot of Violet taking Corky's hand and putting it between her legs. In the big, the V sex scene, there's a shot of Violet fingering Corky, like, full hand on Vag. There's a shot of their titties that are, like, bouncing off each other. uh, And then there's a longer shot of Corky coming with Violet's finger in her mouth. There's also one extra (laughs) shot. (laughs) I know. (laughs) There's also one extra shot of Shelly's head banging against the toilet in his torture scene. So, again, that's all. Like, it doesn't take away from the movie. However, like, I mean, don't take away from that sex scene. Because the other thing with the sex scene is, like, they they, they intentionally did it in one single take Mm -hmm. because they were worried that De Laurentiis, when marketing it overseas, would... He tried to cut it. Yeah, he would cut it and insert, like, do insert shots of porn actresses um, having sex. And so the Wachowskis were like, oh, the way around that is to just do it in one shot because then they can't cut into this this scene. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the film premiered on August 31st, 1996 at the Venice Film Festival and in September went on to play at TIFF. It opened in U.S. theaters on October 4th, 1996, distributed by Gramercy Pictures, showing only in 261 theaters. And it closed after three weeks. Blark. Yeah. So according to Tilly and Gershon, they didn't know how to market it because of the lesbian content. So they marketed it towards 18 year old boys and when they should have marketed it towards literally anyone else. (laughs) So it's a Jennifer's body situation. Yep. Very much so. But it's opening weekend. It landed in 12th place where it earned about $900,000 and it went on to gross $3.8 million in the States and $3.2 million from other territories for a worldwide gross of $7 million against that production budget of $6 million. Critical reception was overwhelmingly positive, though. Uh, it's got an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 7.9 out of 10, a 61 out of 100 on Metacritic, and uh, Letterboxd users have given it a 7.8 out of 10. It won the Grand Jury Award Honorable Mention at the 1996 LA Outfest. It won GLAD's 1997 Award for Outstanding Wide Release Film. Joe, as you said, the Wachowskis were compared by many to the Coen brothers, uh, with a few critics pointing out the similarities between Abound and the Coen's 1984 debut, Blood Simple. Others compared it to the works of Tarantino, since Pulp Fiction was released the year before, and Alfred Hitchcock. A few naysayers thought the film was too violent, but funnily enough... Okay, so here's the thing. Funnily enough... Enough, the sexual content did not seem to be a point of contention with anyone. In hmm. fact, the sex scenes were admired for being tasteful, discreet, and realistic. But it was the violence that really threw people off. <laughs> Weird. I can't help but wonder if it's because people were almost enraptured by the sex that when you see the violence, you're like, oh my gosh, this is so confronting because I thought I was watching this like really intimate sexual mm. 
love story. Yeah, because it like draws you in, it pulls you in. Then it's like, oh my mm-hmm. god, his fingers on the toilet on the bathroom floor. <laughs> right. I guess. I mean, maybe because like we're we're horror buffs, but I'm just kind of like, it's not like anyone's getting gutted in this movie. Like, the worst we see, honestly, is that finger. But it's really the sound, like the sound of Shelley's head hitting that toilet, where you're like, mm-hmm. oh shit, like that's that's violent. But it's not like yeah. But if you've seen any mob movie, this is going to be, you know, common. Oh, I've seen this a million times. And the the in test screenings, they had considered cutting that scene, like cutting down that oh, scene really? where, get, where Shelley mm-hmm. gets his finger cut off. And they the Wachowskis fought for it hard because they were like, no, because we need to know that he's willing to do it. Because yeah. later in the film, he threatens it to Violet and we yeah. need to, mm-hmm. or or to Quirky, and you need and you need to believe that he'll actually go through with it. Hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. I I wanna I wanna bring up. I want to bring up a quote from Variety, Todd McCarthy, a critical yeah. who did not like the film. He said that the directors had no sense of humor and lacked depth, that the film was pretentious, superficial, <laughs> and heavy-handed, which is incredibly wrong. But it's just like, you know, there is, there is, I've heard people describe this film, Joe, I mean, um, Chase, you had indicated this as well, too, about it being campy. And mm-hmm. I can almost see it. Like the humor is pretty like subversive and funny and the violence yeah, is yeah. almost like over the top. But mm-hmm. I just struggle to why <laughs> this movie can't be. Like it's just it's it's thrilling. It's sexy. It's like erotic. you know, it's just it's not I don't know. It, I I have a hard time heavy handed maybe in like okay how many how many whooshes are we gonna do with that camera? Okay, but but wait. So <laughs> I, I'll say this. It's a, a, a campy joke. I would say is like you know whenever uh, he catches them uh, having sex and he's like oh he shakes her hand and it's like oh yeah. she hesitates because it's like oh like where but but here's the thing I did show Fucking this movie to dark to, to, in here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I showed this movie to two of my gay friends years ago and they really struggled with the acting specifically really? the acting of Jennifer they thought it was it wasn't real enough it was too fake it was laughably bad is what they had said i know and it was really like i I was like almost crying like hearing them say this because they were bitching about the entire fucking movie but again i think part of that is again it's like that stylized acting in a Mm neo-noir but it's also like it's it goes towards tilly's character of like playing dumb but she's smarter than how she thinks but everyone else around her is so stupid they buy into it Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like she talks higher. Like when she talks to the men, she has she has like more of a baby voice and like oh I'm yes. helpless, you know, and I'm so cute and 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 she talks much lower to Corky because it's like more that's her like real voice. She's talking to her genuinely. But it re- it really hurt me because I was like Jennifer Tilly. I mean, look, Gina Gershon is really good in this movie, but ultimately it is Tilly that has the most screen time, I think, in this film. And so, right, yeah, and she I mean, she drives I... all the plot, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. As you said, Trace, she's also the smartest character in the film. Like she is the one who's instigating everything, everything, and she's the one that has to like be on, on her feet the most, right? Because mm-hmm. she's the one where it's like if something goes wrong, she's the one that has to deal with it right then in that moment. Not Corky. Corky's just listening on the other side of the wall. Act yeah. real, baby. <laughs> and she has to deal with the expectations of the men of like fulfilling their vision of being you know, what being a woman is. But when she seeks what she really wants from Corky, 
And then Corky starts to doubt her as well. Mm-hmm. And she's like, no, I, I know who I am. And, and she's like, it's almost like she just can't win in the beginning. Cause she's like, I, even with the, this, this woman that I, that I'm really into and want to fuck, she, right. she rejects her for different reasons. Yes. Because we can talk about the sex work conversation too when we get to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Joe. I was going to say, now we're just talking about the film. So why do we get into it? <laughs> Take us off. <laughs> Okay, so I am going to bring in one source throughout this. It's uh, Kelly Kessler, who wrote Bound Together for Film Quarterly in the summer of 2003. So we open the film with this roaming camera going through a walk-in closet, and eventually it reveals Quirky, Gina Gershaw, has been tied up. And I'm just going to say it. Yep. We don't need this here. It's fucking stupid. I don't understand why we begin the film with this. So I will tell you, because um, we, we will cut back to the scene at, at one point later, too. We'll mm-hmm. just, we just just randomly cut back to Corky in this closet tied up. Yep. The point of it is, and again, whether it works for you or not, your mileage may vary, is because you're constantly supposed to be wondering if Violet's going to turn on her in this film. So right. by knowing that she does get, at least at some point, Corky will get tied up and put in a closet, mm-hmm. you're wondering, oh, is it just Caesar or is it just Violet or is it Caesar and Violet fucking her over to work together? See, I would still maintain we do a good enough job in the other scenes to mm-hmm. make to make the audience question whether or not the two women can trust each other. So this to me was just, oh, well, we know that she's going to end up getting caught at some point. So it's just a matter of when. I don't even disagree with you. I think that they like to do a motif of closets too, which we can talk about as well. But um, sure. nevertheless, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's fine. I do want to say though, so I get, I, I messaged Joe this on the side, but like I was listening to this and I was like, wow, the score is like really overbearing. It's really intense. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. But it sounds it's God, it's reminding me of so familiar. something. And I was like, it kind of sounds like the score for the 1999 remake of House of Haunted Hills. I was like, well, let me just go through my little rabbit hole. <laughs> oh, look, they share the same composer. Don Davis scored both of these films. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I love the title sequence too. It's like Terminator. <laughs> like right? when the bat, like when bat, it's like bound, and it's got that like it, it's in a noir font, but it's like presented yes. like the last action hero. It's also done practically. Those were foam letters made by um, uh, famed artist Patty Podesta. Uh, so yeah, she uh, she designed this title sequence for them using using these foam letters. That's nice. incredible. I would love to see footage of that of that being. Mm-hmm. Made. That's so well, cool. There's like a 10 minute featurette on the Blu-ray where it's just an interview with her talking about how she did it. Really? Oh, I mm-hmm. want to see that. That's so cool. Wow. Really selling up this DVD release train. <laughs> it's really good. Like honestly, it's really good. <laughs> I have the Arrow one. I gotta get this one. Oh, I didn't know that Arrow had one. Shit. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. We love physical media, but also please try not to bilk us with 12 different releases of popular films. And to be fair, the Arrow release is um, a region B, which has made it difficult for oh, me to I see. watch again. Oh, that's why I don't have <laughs> it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> okay. So after this closet opening, we we don't get an indicator, but you can... It's pretty obvious that we have flashback to a time before, and this is where we are introduced to Quirky locking eyes with Violet, Jennifer Tilly, as she and Caesar, Joey Pants, ride the elevator. And right from the very first yeah. moment we see these two, the chemistry is electric. I fuckery right off the gate. Right? So much eye fucking. I, I, I yeah. <laughs> The sexual tension, like, I, 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 watching it, I feel like if I lean forward, there's like a force pushing me back because the sexual tension is so thick 
in this scene. Mm -hmm. And it's all the better because Caesar does not pay attention to any of this. He's completely tuned out to all of this. And meanwhile, like, yeah, these two women could... They could hypothetically go at each other right here in the elevator. I do like too because I mean, like, I mentioned earlier you know, how th- this film was kind of playing with like, oh, like you know, the gangster who's duped by the woman, blah blah blah. And so I feel like from the get go, you kind of feel like Caesar's a bit of a buffoon. But as the film goes on, the film subverts those expectations by having him be smarter than you realize as as the plot goes on. Right? Yeah, because it's not as interesting if he was a dupe the whole time. He has to he has to be more of a foil. And his biggest mistakes are ego driven. You know. He- He's, he's, right. mm-hmm. he's kind of he, he's he's dumb in the sense that his ego he allows his ego to take over and it's mm-hmm. it's anytime someone challenges his masculinity is when yes. he does something to make it worse for him <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah he's not just stupid like johnny is stupid caesar right. is dangerous yeah, yeah. Well, he'll, he, fuck, he, he'll he's, fuck anything in high heels. I love that. <laughs> I think that's why I like this movie so much. I mean, I'm sorry. One of the reasons why I like this movie so much is because, again, it's kind of like one of those things where it's like, okay, well, if this happens, it's going to be fucked. But the movie's not going to go there because we have to kind of stay like predictable. And it doesn't like, like things unravel much mm-hmm. quicker than I would have expected them to when watching this film. Right. So before we leave the elevator, I realize we're just getting started, but I'm going to bring in Kessler. And part of the reason I ended up liking her article, it's it's a little bit older from 2003, but she looks at the film through three different ways. So the first is the film uh, using images of desire that work for both lesbian and heterosexual viewers, which is where I'm going to draw the majority of my quotes from. But then she also looks at how strategic use of stereotypes are employed, and that's primarily in the depiction of lesbians and obviously Susie Bright contributes greatly to that right and then finally the third element is camper parody of a prototypical <laughs> Hollywood gangster so Kay when you were saying I don't really see the camp appeal you know obviously Trace referenced some jokes that are pretty amusing but I would say the the depiction of gangsters is so Hollywood traditional it almost feels like we're parodying them yeah I could totally see that. So specifically thinking about the way that uh, the, the sexual intimacy is presented, Kessler says of the two, the scenes that depict actual sexual contact between the two main characters have a strong voyeuristic feel. And I think that this is also important because this film is in conversation, obviously, with neo-noir, but also erotic thrillers because yeah. we're bringing in a lot of like noir is the genesis of erotic thrillers, which is what happens when we get to the 80s. And erotic thrillers anticipate neo-noirs, which is where we go in the 90s. So it's all in conversation. Genres are always fluid and malleable in that mm-hmm sense but um kessler says a number of medium shots have both characters in frame so if you think about the way that the elevator sequence is shot we often see both women in the frame and the camera is more often objectively looking in on the action rather than encouraging a specific point of identification by reporting from the point of view of any given character so I, I encourage folks, if you haven't watched the film or if you're interested in watching it again after you hear our conversation, mm-hmm. go back and look at the way that the women are shot. And 
specifically you can focus on the sex scenes but it's often not from one person's point of view it's both women are frequently visible on screen so you're not meant to be like oh that's Corky's point of view and then you say oh that's how she sees Violet it's we're seeing both of them so that we're invested in the intimacy between the two characters we also get a ton of overhead shots in this movie which I mean yes. employed sporadically it's not often but every time we get one I'm like god I want more of these types of shots in movies. <laughs> yep. An overhead shot can be very effective, and it also helps us to orient ourselves geographically. Yes. Yep, that's not a word, but... Geographically. <laughs> Which is wild, because the key sex scene in the film, like the showpiece, they're so, they're, they're so intimate and like having this like incredible sex on the bed, but they had false walls. You know, it's the one take. So the cameras revolve. First of all, the bed is on a stage, like a little platform. Mm -hmm. And the camera is revolving around the bed and you see all the walls. And so they had to like move the walls as they went along and, and orchestrate that whole thing and like move props and everything. And so initially they were like, we want to close set for this sex scene. So we can like feel safe, feel in the moment, feel really intimate. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. But then when they like laid it all out, it was literally like the shot with the most involved people. They're like, they got accountants in. We're like, we need to move that lamp and this. Well, <laughs> and, okay, no. The, Jennifer Tilly says on her interview from like 2018, she was like, yeah, it was like all of a sudden people that didn't need to be there, they found a reason to be there on a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> a little from column A, a little from column B. Let's do this somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'd be here to lift the, the flower pot. <laughs> yeah, I have to be here. I'm an essential member of the set here. But I mean, it's also just a testament to their performance. The fact that all that was going on mm -hmm. around them, the director, you know, because it's there's no dialogue on that scene. It's all the score. And so, the, you know, the director of Wachowskis are literally like yelling, like, wall, hand, boob. <laughs> Come. <laughs> and you get that performance out of them as if you know mm -hmm. there's no one else in the world but each other it's just incredible that's wild yeah and then we as audience members are just sitting here jaded going like mm, i guess that's hot yeah mm. <laughs> like, oh, do you have to do to get this <laughs> yeah no i'm <laughs> all in <laughs> Okay, so we exit this elevator. Corgi goes into her apartment. We learn that she's basically been hired to do renovations for a guy who is not there. And she can hear Violet and Caesar fucking through the walls because thin walls are a plot point in this film. We need to be able to hear what people are doing on the other side. Okay, but what I love though, so A, no straight sex scene is shown in this film. We only hear them, whereas all the queer mm -hmm. sex is like front and center. But again here's kind of a campy joke right so she's she's we hear violet and caesar fucking and it it sounds very aggressive not a, maybe not aggressive but like kind of forceful mm -hmm. while at the same time though we're kind of matching that action to to corky snaking a pipe down the drain of this bathtub yes. and she's forcing yeah. the fuck out of it as we pan back to this instructions on the machine that says don't force snake slow and easy does it <laughs> <laughs> Lessons yeah. that maybe men could pay attention to. <laughs> well, I, I also think it's just it's showing how Quirky's getting horny. She's like, God damn it, I wish oh, that yeah. was me. And there and yeah. the many times when, when Violet's fucking someone behind that wall, the the way Violet is engaging, you know, is is first of all, like she she says she doesn't fuck men, even though she does for money. But she's like 
she knows how thin the walls are. So in a way, she's like playing to Corky during that. Putting on a performance. She's horning her up. Well, and pay attention yeah. to it because this is the first. I mean, I know it's like gross, like black water shit, but like pay attention to how wet this movie is because this is something that Susie Bright points out where it's like a lot of film noir is focusing on a hard on an erection, how hard everything is, whereas bound, this is everything wet. is wet. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So, speaking of wet, after the sex is over, Violet brings over coffee, and you can tell that this is just an excuse to come over and talk to Quirky and to admire that she's good at her hands and she knows how to fix things. Mm-hmm. And when Violet leaves, it's with an open invitation to stop by anytime. This was the scene where my two gay friends were like, This is so unbelievable. And I was like, She's seducing her. Come on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, like gay guys don't know anything about being obvious for getting married. Uh, God, I know. It, it just, makes me so upset. It's so silly, right? Because in some ways, this is a porn setup, yes! right? It's like, yeah. oh, I need yeah. you to come over and rescue my earring because it fell. And it's like, oh, that's such a lesbian thing to do, but it's such a porno thing to do. And right. Whenever she opens the door and Corky's there, she's like, oh, my God, I didn't know he would call you here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. She might as well be reading from a script like, oh, no, I didn't think I'd bring you into this. It's so good. <laughs> Oops, I dropped my pencil. <laughs> Let me bend over right. and get it. <laughs> yeah. Bend and snap. God. <laughs> now, we should yes. know before... Um, before Corky actually goes over to rescue right. said earring, she does because, as you said, Kay, she's fucking horned up. So she goes to the watering <laughs> hole, which is the local lesbian bar. And uh, uh, I love it. This is important not only for depicting the fact like Corky is an out and proud lesbian, she's a member of the community because she's recognized by the bartender Sue, played mm-hmm. by Mary Mara, but also it's like, here's authentically queer women. Like she's going out actively looking to get laid yep. but she's also getting clocked by this you know frankly bitchy police officer who is trying to vag block her where it's just like this is not your woman get out of here what are you doing uh fun yeah. fact to the woman that, that corky hits on is played by Susie bright yeah yeah so obviously they wanted to do a lot more with the music for this film. Um, they wanted to include like the girl from Ipanema and a couple other things, but they couldn't afford the rights to the music. Um, mm. But in this song, like Aretha Franklin's I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You is what's playing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a backup. So, so Kessler says of including Susie Bright in this moment, it intertextually connects the film to actual lesbian culture and allows lesbian viewers to believe they are more fully experiencing the film by understanding the reference that would be lost on viewers who are not in the know. So you could watch this movie, not know that that's Susie Bright, plays totally fine. You know, it's just like, oh, she tries to score with this woman and it doesn't work out for her. Mm-hmm. But Susie Bright was very well known at the time. Like, she's not just a sex expert, but she's the editor of a lesbian erotica magazine called On Our Backs. So if you were a lesbian in the know, you would know who Susie Bright was. And seeing her on screen, you're like, holy shit, this movie is authentically queer. Like, those are lesbians in this lesbian bar. Could you imagine if William William Friedkin had a Susie Bright for cruising? I mean, he must have, because there are some parts where I'm like, this feels pretty authentic. But, like, it (laughs) (laughs) that movie really, I love cruising, but that movie really, really needed a It's a little messy in parts, right? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but I but I appreciate it because it it is unapologetically sexual. 
but I just think that you know they it really helps when you have an authentic like expert in a community being involved in the production i will say it's interesting because there's two film professors who have a feature out on this blu-ray they talk about how i mean look yes it was controversial to have this like lesbian stuff at the time blah 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 blah, but it was still more accepted among more people and they talk about this double standard between lesbian sex scenes and gay sex scenes because at the same time this movie would have come out there was a lot of controversy around melrose place which was going to feature a a kiss between a character and his boyfriend but they had to cut it out of the show because advertisers were threatening to pull out even though if anyone who's seen melrose place knows the characters the straight characters on that show were having orgiastic sex all the time (laughs) (laughs) yeah Good old Matt. Never got anything to fucking do on that show. And then he dies. And then he dies. Yeah, he had AIDS and then he died. No, he had a car wreck and he died. <laughs> but he did oh. have AIDS, didn't he? Oh, I don't know. Maybe he did. I don't know. We'll, I know we'll he died hear from all the Melrose fans now. Honestly, he probably had. Sure. <laughs> Gay in the 90s? Why not? Yeah. Exactly. It did not end well. Let's just say. No. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, okay, so after Corky strikes out, she drives home in her truck. <laughs> so th- this is where we are leaning into stereotypes. But as you've often said, Tracy, you know, there's a reason that stereotypes exist. It's because sometimes they are true. And I love that Bound plays on that fine line between, yeah, sometimes we lean into the, oh, she is a butch dyke lesbian, and we're going to lean into that. And then sometimes it's like, oh, but also we're going to subvert a lot of that too. Okay, but to be clear, the entire relationship between Corky and Violet is a stereotype because they mm-hmm. are, they, they've known each other for two days before they ride drive off on the sunset <laughs> together. So right. they are well, even lesbians yeah. personified. <laughs> And Violet calls out when when she when she says something about a car. She goes truck, and she goes, "Of course, mm-hmm. of course, <laughs> of course, I knew it." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, even when she offers Quirky a drink, you know, Quirky says, "I'll take a beer," and she says, "Of course, of course." Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, and I, you know what? She, my pleasure. I love when I love when people say that. My pleasure. She, oh, I do. Uh, I. I, uh, I I don't say I, I can't. Don't. <laughs> it's the word pleasure is just so inherently sexual to me that I can't say my pleasure in a non-sexual. I, actually, I don't even say pleasure in sexual environments. I, mean, I don't tell someone <laughs> I'm going to pleasure you. <laughs> I just think it sounds so wordy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's expand up on that, Trace. What's going on there? <laughs> I mean, I what guess. Are, what I, are your I, fears I, of intimacy here, Trace? No, yeah. I, no, I, I'm not afraid of doing the pleasuring. I just I, the word <laughs> pleasure just has a weird has a weird like mouthfeel to it if that makes any sense god just hearing you say doing the pleasuring was like an uncomfortable (laughs) moment you sounded so unenthused (laughs) 
<laughs> Moving and on. And we're talking about your pleasure, not their pleasure. <laughs> no, I get off on pleasuring others. I see, I, th- th- that is literally the only time I will say pleasure. I'll tell people I get off on pleasuring <laughs> others. But I, but if I'm with someone, I'm not just going to be like, can I pleasure you? I love pleasuring you. Oh, you know what, though? I think people say servicing now. I service you. I like servicing Ooh, you. Boy, I do not like the connotations of that. Oh, yeah, see, I've I kind of not... do. I kind of do. <laughs> Maybe I'm not kinky enough. Maybe that's it. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm pretty vanilla, but yeah, I I th- I would prefer to say I, I want to service you instead of I want to pleasure you. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. Listeners, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, I was I was just trying to get to the part where I get to talk about the fact that Corky wears boys' briefs because I thought that that was such a good touch. I, I wrote in my yeah. notes, what are these whitey tidies? <laughs> They're amazing. Oh, who cares That's when what she's? Oh my god, when she's paying the ceiling, those fucking shoulders. Oh my god, mm-hmm. <laughs> so hot. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like the chemistry between the two women is great, but also have either actress look this good on screen? I mean, you could argue Gina Gershaw looks amazing in Showgirls, but that movie isn't hers per se. Like, I don't know. There, there's something just so inherently sexual about both actresses in this film i think that's what helps to bring me into the narrative is the fact that they're so into it and they're so alluring i can't help but be smitten with them i'm just gonna just gonna throw it out there bride of chucky oh mm, yes i mean jennifer tilly they're they're both just gorgeous people they're just like Mm -hmm. like godlike beings (laughs) (laughs) everything they do uh yes okay so this is when uh corky goes to help out violet the next day recover her earring of course it's a lesbian text so we're getting plenty of close-ups on hands and other disembodied body parts so we're seeing a lot of jennifer tilly's thighs as she's standing there watching but i do love that shot of corky under the sink fixing this drain like, oh yeah again very wet it's so hot (laughs) i have never found any aspect of plumbing to be erotic or sexual or anything but there's something about the way her hand unscrewing this fucking pipe with the water just pouring down oh god Mm -hmm. i'm I'm wet i'm wet just thinking about it (laughs) and and she had the look on her face too like she knows exactly what she's like this fucking bitch Mm So here's the thing. Here's the thing. No shade to either Tilly or Gershon if either one of them has had any work done. But Jenny Gershon's lips are so distinctively shaped. And I don't know if by this point she'd had any work done. If she had, whatever. It look, She looks so fucking good. Like, I just love the shape of her lips, though. Like, I'm, I'm every time she speaks, my eyes are locked into her mouth. Well, they're both very, very expressive, right? And I think the camera... It's doing a lot of medium shots in the sex scenes, but we are getting a lot of close-ups on lips, hands, different parts of their bodies. So I think that naturally, it just arouses you, right? I mean, it's th- th- this next scene when they start making out and she's like, it's that close-up on their... Okay, this movie has the most sexual breathing in a sex scene that I've mm-hmm. ever experienced. And it's like... Like, Corky's fingering Violet, and she's like, you know, oh, if, if, if I say no, will you, will you take your hand away? No, then yes, I I, I did this on purpose. But, like, mm-hmm. the, the, the breathy, like, Marilyn Monroe-style way in which they are oh, speaking yeah. to each other is so fucking hot. 
<laughs> well, so you don't, there's no, there's no like dick. There's no like erect anything. Exactly. So I think this film is all about showing the erotic, like the eroticism of all the other body parts and how erogenous zones for women are like all mm-hmm. over. So the, the mouths and especially the hands as a sex yes. organ. Well, and how often do you have, like, female pleasure being the focus of a sex scene? Mm -hmm. Right. Or women that, like, actively seek sex and want sex, right? And that's the end goal. Like, it's, I just want to get laid. (laughs) Well, it's interesting, right? Because if you think about it from a noir perspective, you have a lot of women who are driven by sex and power, Mm -hmm. but it's for a nefarious purpose. At this point, it's pretty evident that Violet is seducing Corky. We can Mm -hmm. assume that it's probably not going to be for good things. But yeah, and she admits it. Isn't it obvious? I'm trying to seduce you. (laughs) (laughs) I I love someone being forthcoming in that. Honestly, like, just say i'm trying to seduce you i'm like oh panties out like i'm done like so <laughs> <laughs> I, I like honesty <laughs> yeah there we go honesty is pleasurable serviceable <laughs> yeah serviceable <laughs> yeah okay honesty is servicing <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so so Kay, you're absolutely right. One thing, like Tracy mentioned it, Kay, you just said it. It's important to note that not only are there no sex scenes involving men in this entire movie, but there's no like there's no emphasis on bulges or phalluses or like there is no phallocentrism at all. So it's all female pleasure all the fucking time. And again, if you're thinking about this movie appealing both like it's it's the writing that really fine line where it's obviously appealing to sex fantasies of heterosexual men who might be coming for the crime thriller, but also to audiences who are turned on by women where it's like, oh, you just get to engage in this lesbian fantasy where there are no men, there's no threat of a threesome at any point in this film. It's just ladies enjoying each other, often like in a way that feels very genuine and intimate. I mean, like, I know a lot of gay men who actually, he, um, he might kill me for saying this, my husband like, likes watching, like, lesbian porn. And, okay. like, but like, it's not really my cup of tea, it's not something that I go to, but if I was ever going to change my mind, this movie's the one to do it, because I, I get hot <laughs> watching this scene. <laughs> I did want to note too. We we pay if you pay attention to the fingers, right? Because this is Violet getting pleasured by Corky, and I know that fingernails can be an issue when it comes to lady parts. So it oh. is significant that when we see Corky's hands, her fingernails are nicely trimmed up. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna get personal for a second because yeah, think it's do it. Uh, so I've been trans- transitioning for about three years now, and, mm-hmm. um, and medically so. So all of my erogenous zones are completely different. And so when I've, when I've been with men, they see my body as one way, and they're like, oh, it's like me. This what feels good for me. It must feel good. And it's like, no. <laughs> That's no. not how it works. <laughs> and so... The first time I actually had a like a genuinely pleasurable, like overwhelmingly so experience was with a lesbian because Ooh. I was touched like a woman. They knew where these where the erogenous zones were, and it like blew my mind. Like I for days <laughs> I was like I pulled, <laughs> my body was like sex drunk, and it Ooh. was because women knew women know like what feels good and how it is inherently right. different than touching a man. Well, I guess so. I'm curious, and again, you can tell me like you can tell me to answer this question. But like, so like, is it like you're? Are you, 
you find yourself rediscovering not just your body, but yeah, like those erogenous zones. So like when you're having solo time, let's say, which is my euphemism for masturbating. Yeah, uh, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> no, but but like, but like, have you had a time where you're like masturbating? And you're like, oh my, I, you touch a certain part of your body, like, oh, that's never done anything for me before. But holy shit, like, wow, it, it really hit the spot. Yeah, it's it's completely di- it's completely different. And like, what I what I tell men is like, I don't have a dick, I have a clit, I have. A- <laughs> Mm-hmm. I have a, a, a swollen clit. Okay, does that help? And if you don't, a swollen clit. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, if, if you if you can't pleasure me, thinking it that way, that's you have a different problem. <laughs> that's right. Not, that's not me being trans. You have another problem. Pleasure. Well, clit. but I guess though. Okay, I mean, like, not to like, like put your whole sex life out there, but I mean, like, okay, so you say like lesbians, like you've had really good sexual encounters with lesbians, but like, I guess with a gay man, like, have you had a sexual encounter with a gay man who has never been with a woman, where it's maybe like you gotta educate them, educate them a little bit, yeah. Um. Hmm. Oh. No, I mean I'm doing way more education now than I ever had. Right. Like, that's how you know you're a woman because you're doing all the sex education with women. <laughs> yeah, well, it's because it's like let's just cut to the chase. Like I'm just gonna tell you exactly what to do because I ain't got time for you to figure it out. Honestly, sometimes <laughs> even I, I mean, like admittedly, I, I only really like have sex with gay men, but it's like I, sometimes I'm just like, just tell me what you want, dude. Like I, maybe it like ruins the mystique around sexuality. I'm like, no, just tell me what you want, and I'll fucking do it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, honestly, like the hottest. Th- I can't believe it. Okay. I mean, I'm totally comfortable yeah. with this. I hope, I hope your listeners are okay with it. But when I was fooling around with this person and it was starting to get hot and heavy, um, mm-hmm. like she took my pants off and then she was like, fair warning, I have zero experience with cock. And I was like, well, that's great because I don't have one. And then I took her hand and like showed her what to do with my hand. That was like mm-hmm. so sexy. And then that's when it clicked for oh okay this is i know what to do okay no that 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 to me is hot i mean for me like again like i feel like there's so much pressure on sexuality and like what you're supposed to do what you're not supposed to do for me some of the hottest sex comes from like again like the the first time you're with someone and you are both learning each other's bodies but mm-hmm. without without the expectation of you should already know what to do it's like no so everybody right. is different like hey let me show you what to do let me tell you what to do that to me like that learning together is mm-hmm. what makes sex hot but I know that not everyone agrees with that, so. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it comes down to transparency. It's a form of transparency. Yes. It's like, let's cut through the bullshit. And it's like, all right, we're already naked. Like, well, let's not pretend on top. I mean, unless, you know, we're role-playing. <laughs> but, like, let's, no, I mean, let's just like, get look, to look, the chase. It, I was with a guy once who was like, he, so he literally didn't like, I mean, he didn't mind having his dick touched, but he was very much a nipple person. So he didn't uh, want me to just uh-huh. blow him or just give him a hand job. He was like, no, you need to be on you my need to nipple. Get nipple action in there. L- literally, whether you're pinching my nipple or you're sucking my nipple, that is your first priority. And mm-hmm. then you can stroke me while you're <laughs> yeah. doing that. And that's it. Yeah. But like, don't just stroke me. Don't just blow me. And so it's like, hey, I never would have guessed that. So thank no. you for telling me. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think yeah. that part of it is that we've been conditioned as people to not be expressive about sex because, I mean, especially in North America, it's all taboo, right? Like, oh, we should yeah. be shamed for wanting to have pleasure. Like, it's a dirty thing. And especially for us as queer people, it's like, oh, well, you're not even trying to procreate. So you're just in it for the pleasure. And it's like, yeah, yeah. I <laughs> am. That's literally why I'm doing this. But if yeah. you're not communicating what's pleasurable trace the word 
If you're not communicating to people what is turning you on, how the fuck do you expect them to figure that out? Like, sure, if you're willing to let them explore all over your body and do a bunch of things you don't get turned on by, maybe that's part of your kink. But apart from that, like, be specific. Help people out. If you want to have a good encounter, give them instructions. That's the thing. I mean, like, like I'm window into my fucking brain and mindset and sex life. But like, yeah, I, I have been with people who are like, don't talk. Like, that's not sexy. And I'm like, okay, but I like to actually conversate. Like, when we're navigating these avenues during a, especially a first sexual encounter, mm-hmm. I find that very hot. But I have been with people who are like, shut up. Don't talk. Don't do that. Say, uh, <laughs> say. Sometimes I get really chatty because I want them to. Yeah, say shut up. <laughs> it's fun. No, I think yeah. To me, that's very sexy. And like you said, the word you use, transparency. Like transparency to me mm-hmm. is so fucking hot. I mean, honestly, the <laughs> not to shame anybody who may have said that in the past, Trace, but anybody who says I don't want to hear you talk, that sounds like they're only in it for themselves. Entirely possible, honestly. <laughs> Although my husband may or may not have told me that uh, in some of our first sexual encounters. <laughs> Uh, well, that's probably just Ari also being like, you never shut the fuck up. How about you put your mouth to work? It, little column A, little column B. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love this. It's like Howard Stern all of a sudden. <laughs> and you are not the father. These are my favorite episodes, honestly. It's fine. We're good. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it is relevant. It's just It's true. We were talking about a sex scene, folks. I'm, I'm, but yeah. <laughs> moving on past this sex scene. <laughs> Yes. Okay. We we belabored the point long enough. We'll go back to the regular film. So uh, <laughs> this sex scene, very hot. Alas, it is interrupted because Caesar comes home before Violet can reciprocate with Corky. So there's this delicious moment where, of course, Caesar is threatened by the fact that Violet is in the dark with someone, but then he's reassured because it's another woman. So he doesn't have to worry about it. And you're just like... Fucking idiot. This line. Well, Bianchini hired you, so you must be pretty good with your hands. But I'm mm-hmm. bummers. <laughs> <laughs> also, it's fucking dark in here. I oh, I know. His, I love his delivery. Dark. He's Joey Pants. <laughs> so here, here's the so thing. Paired. Pantaleano is very much a co-lead in this film. Like, it mm-hmm. is the Tilly Gershon show. But truthfully, I even think Pantaleano might have more screen time than Gershon. And Possibly. I, he is just... A delight. I mean, this is his first lead role in a film, and he is a delight. I love him mm-hmm. in this movie. <laughs> well, and he kept trying to get more screen time. He was jealous of all the sexy time between Gina and Tilly. That he was kept trying to find ways to like drop trap. Tra- like when he is oh in his God. towel, that was his idea. He's like, I want to be naked too. <laughs> oh, yeah, and the and the Wachowskis were like, "What are you doing? No one wants to see that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Literally nobody. This is a no dong show. <laughs> Uh, so uh the other reason that caesar is reassured by corky's presence is because he acknowledges that she is a con so everyone is able to identify her background right away i don't think she's really trying to hide it but the fact that these are all not great people right like we're all involved in crime of some kind so he encourages her to take a payout so he doesn't have to worry about her and then sends her home and i love the moment where she goes back to the apartment and she's about to wash her hand and she just takes a look at it like yeah those fingers i'm surprised she just sniff it well she is rubbing she's rubbing her fingers together she is yeah 
I mean, I can't help but flash forward to the opening episode of Sense8 when the Wachowskis not just have greater carte blanche, but I think are far more comfortable with expressing female sexuality, like to an even greater degree, because the introduction of Jamie Clayton's character is her and her girlfriend basically going at each other with a dildo and the dildo like falls out and onto the ground and you can see like wetness on <laughs> on the dildo it's great mm. <laughs> you're just like yeah this is the show we're making but like you have to go through bound to get to sensate D- does it end definitively because i know it was canceled it does they they got a, a wraparound oh, a movie. movie okay you know what maybe maybe i'll put that on my list who knows and I can, t- I mean, the story is very meandering to the point, like, I know some people when they look at The Matrix Reloaded, they look at that 10 minute rave sequence that opens that second film, and they're just like, oh, it's so indulgent, it doesn't advance the plot or whatever. There's large portions of Sensei that feel that way, where mm-hmm. you want them to be more narrative driven or more action. And it's contemplative, it's meditative. And in some ways, it's very risky in that way but i can tell you that the queer love stories are the heart and soul of that fucking show all right all right well one one thing of note in comparison to bound is that when they made bound and the matrix films it was extremely planned out like every detail right right said that made them feel really confident that once they were into Mm -hmm. production they were like oh we know exactly what to do there was just like a line you know it just it just made them feel more confident and comfortable and um later they they became more improvisational and they wanted their directing to reflect their writing and it was more of like organized chaos and so a lot of sense eight was improv i feel like you can see that that makes perfect sense well i have yet to see the matrix revolutions but i am mighty curious because i know that lana is the sole director of that one as opposed to the wachowskis together but i've also heard very mixed things about that film (laughs) so i'm interested to see like how it comes across i love it and i guess i would say it is looser you know there's a Mm. a little it's a little more looser but it's still like a matrix film kind of It'd be hard to make a show at the a production at that level work without be, having a heavy hand at what what's going mm-hmm. on. But it mm-hmm. does it does feel a little looser of, of, than the the previous three. It does, yeah. I I would say it feels looser and a different kind of confident again. Well, it's it's yet another film of the Wachowskis that's like giving a middle finger to the studio system. Oh boy, is it ever! It's amazing in that way. I I really liked it, Trace. I would strongly recommend it. No, I mean I, I've had it on my deck for like ever. I've just, I've just never been like oh because I yeah you know yes <laughs> I, I will I will watch it one of these days. <laughs> also, Keanu and Carrie. Carrie Ann have like really good chemistry after all that time. Mm-hmm. Good. And Keanu, Keanu's like lesbian adjacent. He kind of is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So afterwards, Violet ends up tracking Quirky down in the truck and she apologizes for what she didn't get to do, aka she didn't get to reciprocate on the sex act. This is when we wipe up to the women already in bed and we get the second longer more substantial sex scene. 20 minutes into this movie, by the way. (laughs) I remembered it coming so much later. Yeah, no, this movie does not fuck around. We are in it to win it. So I'm not going to 
I'm not going to repeat too, too much of what Kessler has already said about, you know, the medium shots, the lack of men and fallow centric objects and so on. But again, just, you know, really focusing on how the spectator can actually be present as an almost active third participant due to the medium shots and the way that it's filmed. And then yes, folks, think of the number of times you have seen a sex scene that takes place in like one tracking shot uninterrupted by editing, it's not just difficult to film, but it also creates a completely different sensory experience. Yeah, like you seriously feel like you're there. And it's hot. It is <laughs> so hot. The, 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 the sweat you can see pooling on Gershon's like belly um, mm-hmm. is, oh, God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the like smeared lipstick and... And Jennifer Tilly, who's high femme, and she's mm-hmm. fucking railing the, her. The, that, breathe, that breathing, <laughs> yes. the breathing is intensifying. Like, it, I, uh-huh. honestly, I, it really feels like she made Gershon calm. Like, that, that's really how it feels yes. like watching this film. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting because we are ending the month with a very queer, very sex heavy film. So almost a counterpoint to this. And that movie actually has unsimulated sex scenes. I would argue you could look at Bound and be confused as to whether or not these two women fucked each other. Especially in that unrated cut, which again, it's only, it's mere seconds of additional footage. But I mean, there's that shot where it's Tilly's hand on Gershon's crotch. And I'm like, I feel like she's actually fingering her. Mm -hmm. Well, and because they're both women, for them, that meant that they could could be a lot more comfortable with each other than if they were doing Mm -hmm. a sex thing with with a man that they were more supportive of each other because of that um sort of vulnerability and so they were able to say like okay put when you grab my boob like hold it like this so it looks more mm-hmm. plump or like i have cellulite <laughs> on my thigh here so make sure you cover when you touch me cover the cellulite on my thigh and they just were really looking out for each other in that way it's really sweet <laughs> honestly i want i want just to have a sex scene i'm sorry i want to have sex like that hey can you just hold my butt up to hide my cellulite <laughs> oh my <God>. <laughs> <laughs> You can trace. Nothing's stopping you. I don't. Fuck it. I, next time I do it, I will. Absolutely. Chris <laughs> is going to be like, this isn't actually turning me on. It's just helping my self-esteem. Yes. So I'm <laughs> trying to be transparent about my pleasure. I No, honestly, yes. I, I think that's sexy. Again, as long as you are making someone feel better about themselves, it doesn't have to necessarily be like, like a, a bodily pleasurable thing where it's like, oh, like, I'm jacking you off. I'm flicking your clit or whatever the fuck. It's just a... <laughs> no. no. <laughs> this is how you know Trace has never had sex with a woman. <laughs> I, I don't even just flick the clit. I'm sorry, but <laughs> but no, but no, but just like again, if it's something simple, with someone's like, oh, I'm insecure about this. How do I make you feel better about that? Right. That's something that's pleasurable. Maybe not physically pleasurable, but it's emotionally or mentally pleasurable. And so again, that 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 goes into my mindset when I'm in bed with someone. Mm-hmm. Stimulating. Yes. There is a mental game to having sex with people. Like it's not just a physical yeah. thing. It's about emotional it, connectivity. Well, it's about thinking about your partner and being present and aware of what they're looking for. I think game implies that someone needs to win. You know me. So I'm going to say it's a mental tete-a-tete. <laughs> yes. A French word for the same concept. It sounds a better. Ment- a, a mental undertaking. Sure. Yes. Oh my God. A playful banter. <laughs> Jesus Christ. We sound like we're describing an X-Men movie plot right now. <laughs> oh my god so in case you didn't know it was good corky finishes this by saying i can see again 
And, um, oh yeah, I love that line. The next day, she's like basically tap dancing. Like she's mm-hmm. so. Oh, she's like, okay. yes. And the second big music cue, so she gets out of her truck, and Ray Charles is "Hallelujah, I love her so" is playing over this. It is <laughs> yeah. so again. It's just so funny. It's so playful. It's so frivolous. I just oh, I love all of this. Right, and like yeah, the day after you get laid, you're like, oof. All right. <laughs> Let's do this. Well, and we can also assume by the way the narrative sets it up that she is only just out of jail. So she hasn't had sex in a while unless she presumably had it while she was on the inside. Um, Which I find it really hard to believe she wouldn't have fucked someone on the inside. I mean, is it Orange is the New Black? We don't know. Look, you got to establish dominance early on. <laughs> 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 Uh, okay, so unfortunately things are going to start taking a darker turn because Corky observes Shelly, who is played by Barry Kival, arriving. He will fuck Violet, which makes Corky very upset, and she even questions whether Violet is an authentic or real lesbian. And I think that this is a really yeah. vitally important, not just because we're setting up trust issues between the two women, but I'm not going to lie – even in the day and age of our Lord 2023, this conversation of, oh, well, if you fuck this man, then you can't be a lesbian or I'm questioning your sexuality. Yeah. A, it's by erasure, but also B, it's like you don't get to tell people what their sexuality is. Corky. Well, sexual fluidity wasn't as accepted on either side of the spectrum, queer or sure. straight at this time. And so no. but, but I get it. Right. I mean, like it. I think there's something to be said about a community, like a queer community, that's been marginalized. And I guess by queer, I mean either explicitly gay or explicitly lesbian, mm-hmm. um, where, I mean, you know, there's like a, not a jealousy, but kind of a thing where it's like, oh, if you're bisexual or pansexual or whatever, like you can have, you can quote unquote pass for straight if you want to, because you have a straight side of your life. And I'm mad about that. I'm jealous of that. I'm angry about that because I don't have that quote unquote luxury. So, I, yeah, I agree. I find this conversation very fascinating because it also adds to Violet's character, right? It's not only mm-hmm. is she trustworthy enough as a as a partner in crime, but is she trustworthy as a romantic partner because she may not be a quote-unquote authentic or real lesbian. Yeah. And, of course, this is dovetailing into conversations about things like sex work and what Violet has had to do to survive. You know, she says that everybody's got prices that they need to pay. So Violet isn't with Caesar, presumably because she loves him or wants to be with him. It's like she has basically found herself in with the mob or the mafia. So these are some of the things that she has to do until she can safely find a way out. Hence, a two million dollar heist. Oh, I, I just want to point out when they when they have that little fight and and she's like, I think you should go, and like, good mm-hmm. for for Violet. I love right? how Violet advocates for herself. Yes. And then on her way out, she goes <laughs> when trying to steal anything on her way out. <laughs> I try not to steal anything on your way out. It's well, like, fuck, so you're mean. so hot, Violet. It's also just like, I love how she says, oh, that's not sex. Okay, but it is literally sex, but you view it mm-hmm. as work. You distinguish work and sex, even if it's, yes. if your work is sex, are two very different things. Mm-hmm. It's almost like it's a tete-a-tete or something. Right? Yep. Well, also, <laughs> also, with the theme of, like, 
being bound or in the closet or being restricted mm-hmm. by expectations oh, yeah. or gender roles or whatever. It's like yep. she, Violet's well, very much trapped in her situation and she's mm-hmm. trapped with Caesar and she's trapped in sex work to survive. But- and she's she's like, no, this is the one thing I'm choosing is to be intimate with you and you're giving right. me shit. And that's why I think it's really interesting slash funny that Corky is the one that's in the literal closet for this film. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think it's yeah. important because we start the film with Corky and you could almost say we're, we're with her. It's from her perspective. And as a result, we don't trust Violet in these moments, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know whether she's telling the truth. So I think it's important that Corky gets sidelined in her own apartment and then later in the closet so that we have the time with Violet to understand, okay, she is actually in this for Corky as well. Yeah, and Corky even, I mean, she's bound by her own expectations of Violet. Like, you know, she's she's having these sort of like basic thoughts of sexuality and, Mm -hmm. um, and it's about like just being finding a way to be free together it's just so beautiful (laughs) i mean we should know we we don't know all of quirky's backstory but it will be revealed that the reason she went to prison is because she was betrayed by her female lover so Mm -hmm. she already had trust issues so i think this kind of wrinkle in violet's sexuality from quirky's point of view is a red flag of oh you know she she's fucking hot she gives great finger, but also I don't want to go back to prison. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hand, there's more than a finger going in there. Sorry, there we go. Yeah, a full <laughs> wrist. <laughs> okay, so let's introduce another new character. It's time for Psycho Fuck Johnny, who is played by who else but Christopher Maloney to come in. <laughs> Christopher Bubblebutt Maloney. <laughs> oh my God, this man. A, a true queer ally for yeah. everything Wet Hot American Summer, and then, yeah, anytime he wears a pair of pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This whole film is, like, ally central. Truly. So, uh, Shelley is also back because it's revealed, ooh, Shelley has committed a bit of an infraction, a bit of a no-no, and he needs to be badly beaten in the bathroom so this is uh, a really fun transition where we have Corky listening on her side in the bathroom, and then we just cut to what looks to be the exact same toilet, except it's on the flip side, and it's filling with blood. I also love, like, it, I mean, it's basically a Jurassic Park homage, right? <laughs> uh, no, but... <laughs> I think it is. Come on, the rippling of the toilet on Corky's end? Come on. <laughs> That's how water works. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying Jur- Jur- this came out two years after jurassic park if it came out today i might be like yeah sure whatever but like come on they were like that's a good idea <laughs> you know what write to the wachowskis and ask them um also more camp humor though again all this shit's happening and you know violet's all upset and <laughs> caesar's response is what i didn't use a good towel <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, so also on the scene, we have Mickey, who is played by John Ryan, and he's the one who seems most aware of Violet's feelings. So Johnny is lewd, he's gross, he's chauvinistic, Caesar is somewhere in the middle, and then Mickey seems like the nice one. Except... I, Except, <laughs> I I, th- I think I mean I'm not an expert in gangster mafia movies, but t- I feel like the general trope is the one who's the most calm, cool, and collected is usually the most dangerous and violent one. 
Correct. Yes. Mickey is the one we need to be afraid of. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although in the end, you know, it's uh, it's like basically revealed how that he's in love with Violet. Mm-hmm. Well, everyone is in love with Violet, which I think is part of the film's I mean, way of saying, yeah, she's really fucking hot. But also, ooh, can you trust her? Because she could just be playing all of these people. Right. And spoiler alert, she is, except for one. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and in a way, she's playing, you know, it, it may may have been her intention at first to play Corky because she maybe she is deliberately trying to seduce her yeah I mean we we don't have that kind of insight I'm thankful that there's no voiceover in this movie because oh yeah. or flashbacks even because there was a thing yep. where they wanted to flashback at one point to Shelly's actual murder and the Wachowskis were like no it's not necessary <laughs> yeah. no it's not yeah <laughs> also we don't have money for that uh okay so we we move to the bar where the women are talking about what's just happened that shelly has effectively lost a finger and this is where violet dangles that two million dollar payday and corky is only hearing i'm sorry you want to steal a bunch of money from the mafia like are you fucking kidding me but what i love though is okay i mean again like i i saw this movie the first time you know at least 10 years ago but I don't know if you know walking into this that you're essentially getting a caper heist movie. Mm-hmm. So I love that then the movie almost doesn't switch genres, but it switches gears to become this type of film. And then right. I'm kind of re-excited all over again to be like, oh, yeah, what's the puzzle we're going to get ourselves into now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's doing a lot of classic heist movie stuff, right? It's okay, we get the gang together. In this case, there's only two of them. But then we have to go through the plan and think about what happens if this happens and make right. sure you do this. And it's not flashy in the way that we might expect an Ocean's Eleven film to be. But it definitely has its own sense of style. And I love the way that it's blurring heist erotic thriller yeah and noir that yeah. and, and th- th- that's what their entire the Wachowski's entire idea was going into this right like let's take these genre conventions and fuck them up but and it's like so important to the, i love the it's such a trope to, like to go okay and this is how it's gonna go down and they have yes. to show it from start to finish because yes. once you know the way it's supposed to go down when mm-hmm. one thing when the first thing goes wrong you're like oh fuck they're fucked. Yeah. How are they doing? Well, that's that's kind of what I like about again the editing in these particular sequences. And I kind of touched on this last week with a simple favor where it's like, oh, like we have a character that's telling us a lie, but the editing is sh- actually showing us they are lying while mm-hmm. the other character doesn't know. Whereas in this moment, it's like, okay, we're we're getting the rundown of their plan while yep. seeing it acted out, but while you're watching, you're kind of like, wait, is this actually happening or is this what they are envisioning is going to happen? Of course, the reality is it is actually happening because we don't have time to fucking waste. And then once things start to go wrong, that's when we actually are like in real time without the voiceover. Right. Yeah. And I love how deceptively simple this plan is, right? Mm -hmm. So it's $2 million. Uh, It comes back to Violet and Caesar's apartment after Shelly gets whacked and Caesar is covered in money. We've got to clean the money, hang it up to dry. And then Gino, who is eventually revealed to be Johnny's father, but Gino, who is played by Richard C. Serafian, he's the head of the Marzoni crime family. So basically, he's going to show up, pick up the money, but it's a big deal for him to come to Violet and Caesar's house. So things have to be exact. And then we know that we can 
tweak something to fuck up Caesar, and that'll be enough of a distraction. So, Well, the plan would have gone perfectly, but it's when someone attacks Caesar's masculinity... That's yes. when he keeps making the mis- the the thing he does the thing that fucks it all up. Okay, wait, but Kay, I'm glad that you mentioned that though, because what we've already seen in the scene where Caesar is law is washing the money, ironing the money, hanging it up. We're already playing with gender roles there, because again, typically yes. the wife is the one who launders things, <laughs> and in this case, it's Caesar. He's doing the woman's work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we will revert back. So it's not like, a, okay, so Caesar is always the woman, quote unquote. Oh, sure. Because, of course, he expects Violet to dress a certain way when Gino comes. We need to make sure that Violet has booze ready. So uh, when she drops the bottle of booze that Gino likes to drink, that's what sets the plan in motion. That's the distraction for her to, quote unquote, leave to go get more, at which point Corky will sneak in and she will swap out the money from the briefcase. So that's the simple version of the plan. (laughs) But as Kay, you've alluded to, it doesn't quite work because Caesar suspects that Johnny is actually fucking Violet because everybody loves Violet and Johnny is a fuck. So that means that he doesn't want to let her out of his sight because originally he was supposed to run. He was going to say, oh, Johnny's taking the money, but I can't go after Johnny because he's Gino's son, which means I need to go on the run, and then he would take all the heat, and then women would escape. And of course, that doesn't happen, so now we have to go into, what, <laughs> like, plan E, plan F? It's kind of wild. And again, that's the thing where I love about this movie, is like you think, okay, well, it's going to go this way. And as any heist movie should tell you, right. it's never going to go the way they plan it out. But no. again, like, things kind of fuck up. Fa- it, it just... I remember watching this the first time. I was like, oh, this is not going in the way I was expecting it to go. And constantly worried that one or both of our Lee ladies was going to die. Right. Because Violet's basically held hostage. You know, she she's able to do these, like, very seemingly minor things to influence what happens. But she, for the most part, she's just kind of, like, watching Caesar unravel. So, Joe, you, you messaged me last night. And, you know, you mentioned, like, how you had – because I think anyone walking into this, you're going to say, okay, this is the this is the Violet and Corky show. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, question mark, quote, unquote, I don't know, um, that is not the case. Much of the second act of this movie is, ju- is the Violet and Caesar show. Yes. So I'm curious, Joe, you know, you said you kind of lose interest once Corky is out of the picture for this second act. Genuine question. Do you think that comes from your expectations or is it is it an actual fault of the movie in your eyes or uh, walk us through that? It's tricky, right? Because as you said, in any kind of heist movie, you can anticipate that things aren't going to go to plan. That's where the narrative enjoyment comes from is, oh, when things fall apart, how does everybody react? How do we get out of it? Mm -hmm. It's more that... It's not like Corky is not even involved in any of this. So it's enjoyable because we've got folks like Chris Maloney acting like an asshole and we get to watch, as you said, Kay, Caesar just completely unravel. And Joe, Joey Pants is 
great in this role. And he is very compelling to watch as he becomes more paranoid and he's far more reactive. Like, I did not expect him to just randomly shoot Gino and Johnny. (laughs) I thought that was going to be the end of the movie. And then it's like, wait, there's a whole other act to come? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think for me, it's because the chemistry between the two women is so dynamic and I naturally gravitate towards strong, interesting female characters getting rid of Corky and then barely even touching on her for this long stretch is really hard. It's, it is kind of like a simple favor where I, I miss the relationship between the women because to me, that's the most exciting part. Yeah. No, I don't even disagree with you. And I can't fault you for that. Um, I mean, look, would I, do I want more Gina Gershon, Jennifer Chili screen time in this movie? Absolutely. Sure. It's just not what the film is doing. It, it, it It's not. I, I would argue it's maybe more egregious than a simple favor, even though I've given both of those films a four and a half stars out of five. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but I don't mind it as much here because it still at least feels like Cor- uh, Corky is involved, even if she's not on screen for much of this time. Right. Because we so firmly establish the way that the that the building is set up and how Corky is Mm -hmm. probably listening to all of this, but she's a little bit helpless in the moment. And I think it's a very key moment when um, they go to Johnny's house to look for the money. And Corky is essentially, Corky could just run. She's got the cash. And she, you know, I think it's like a huge moment for the character to be like, no, like Violet's my girl and I'm going to figure this out and I'm not taking the money without her. But that's the thing, right? Because the whole time, Violet is wondering, oh, my God, like, what if we get back and Corky is just gone with the money? Because that's a very – honestly, it's it's interesting because it, both of these like, – God, watching it the first time, you're kind of like, okay, I feel like I know these characters. I feel like they, they do genuinely feel this way about each other. But I've seen this type of movie before. That is not always the case. And so you have like, – even though the film presents Corky as the one who should be the most worried because Violet is kind of the the enigma of the scenario, right? this moment gives you the Violet side where it's like, oh, shit, like, she really should be worried because Corky could just hightail it out of here. <laughs> yeah, I, I find this movie very interesting in that regard because every time I've watched it, which, again, it's just a couple of times, yeah. I don't trust Violet mm-hmm. to, to stay true to her word. But I always trust Corky. Like, I I never for one moment believe that Corky will run off with the money and leave Violet to Caesar's whims. But I think it's just because we start the story with Corky and right. not Violet. Like, if it was reversed, I think I would feel differently. That's so interesting. I feel the other way. I don't, I'm trying. I need interesting. To I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know. I think, I think just because you, you see how violet is trapped in her situation and mm-hmm. i just i i feel like my empathy is always more with her because quirky in a way has freedom you know i mean she's right. much more confident in who she is and she's kind of has this lifestyle where she can just kind of roll with the punches so i don't know I've, i i don't know maybe i just identify with violet more but i, I mm-hmm. just I, it seemed to me that like you know corky did time she's you know maybe a little more self-serving or, or or able and willing to do what she needs to do to help herself out first and foremost i mean the other amusing thing about this film and i'd be curious to hear from straight listeners about this but because these two women are queer i'm rooting for them 
regardless. Like, even if one of them fucked the other one over, I would still be cheering for both of them. Mm. And I'd just be curious to know if is that my implicit queer empathy where I want queers to come out on top, particularly against people like Caesar and Johnny, where you're just like, ugh, you're a chauvinist, you're a, you're a fucking pig, I don't like you kind of deal. <laughs> well, it's almost like a fairy tale, because at no point do right. I ever believe it's going to end the way it, it does, because where else in cinema history do we get that ending to, to Lily's point? And, and not in the 90s. Well, and, 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 yeah. and that's why Thelma and Louise is brought up so much. She's like, this is the closest you had to a like a mainstream lesbian relationship. Again, maybe, uh, well, outside of Fried Green Tomatoes, but one of them does die in that movie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Thelma and Louise ends with them driving off a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> right, they die. You know, th- for them, that's their own version. You know, they, they did it on their own terms, at least. But, like, they, no, it's like Violet and Quirky almost get like a white picket fence <laughs> you know they have like the happiest yeah. of endings it, yeah, mm-hmm. that's your subversion right there uh, on top of on queer films and just noir films <laughs> yeah i mean it's another subversion right yeah mm-hmm. yeah okay so i i feel like we then move into this next stage where you know the cops have come but we managed to convince them nothing was happening we send them away and it seems like okay all we now have to do is put our attention onto caesar get him to finally fucking run and then we'll be scot-free the problem is that violet calls corky a second time and caesar catches her and then he knows, oh, if I hit the redial button, I can hear the phone ringing on the other side of this uh, thin wall. So it's really fun listening to them on the commentary talk about this scene. Because this, so apparently, like when they were screening this originally, like in primarily like lesbian audiences, like this obviously got a huge audience reaction. The Wachowskis actually chose not to ever rewatch this film again oh. until doing the commentary because they knew that no experience would match one of these screenings in San Francisco. Uh, oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. But... <laughs> no, and so so it's the same way you're watching Violet on the phone. You're like, oh my god, bitch, get off the phone. He's gonna walk mm-hmm. in the room because this is the second I time know. they've had a phone call. And then, yeah, not only is it like, okay, this is because we get the phone, like the, the camera doing the loop in the phone cord, but mm-hmm. Corky keeps letting the phone ring, and apparently in the theater you have people screaming, "Rip out the cord!" <laughs> Rip <Seriously>. it out. <laughs> They both Honestly. make the dumbest decision. You know, like, Violet, what the fuck are you doing? Why would you call Corky? And Corky would... Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. It's so enraged. Well, but it's important, though, because Violet called Corky because this is when she's like, oh, is she still there? Because we mm-hmm. just got back from th- just from trashing Johnny's apartment. So right. I, yeah. I, I understand it. It is a dunderheaded decision. But <laughs> I understand it. <laughs> oh, great word. Uh, we should also note that there is that fantastic scene moments earlier where the two women put their hands on either Uh, side of the wall and the camera goes over the wall so we can see the other one do it and it's not just you know great filmmaking and very pleasurable to watch but it tells you so much about the nature of their relationship it's it's again because we've talked about the eroticism so much of how sexy this is but that's where the romance comes in like Mm -hmm. you want these two women to be together because they are just like i mean it's been two fucking days but who cares they seem perfect for each other exactly (laughs) yeah it's so tender like it's just all this like brutality it's just they're there's this vulnerability and this tenderness between them that prevails. It's so sweet. Yes, absolutely. So, unfortunately, Caesar has figured out that Violet is not trustworthy. He's pretty sure that it's Corky, so he 
more or less lures her back into the apartment. He gets the upper hand, and now we're more or less back to where the film began, because remember our stupid and media res opening. (laughs) You may be wondering how I got into this situation. More or less. I mean, here's the thing. Even something like that is such a quintessentially, like, this is noir, right? You know, it's, how did we get here? Let me tell you a story. So I can't hate it that much. It's just... It's a pet peeve when so many films and TV shows do it. I think it would be maybe it were better for you if the subversion of this trope would be, oh, how she got into the scenario is that how you think she would get into the scenario? But it is. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, oh, Caesar put her in there. There you go. That's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason that she's in the closet is because we have to go back to play acting because, oh, shit. We called Mickey, and he's looking for Johnny. So he's on his way over, and now we have to go back through a second round of charades. That means that Caesar has to clean all the blood off him Uh. and get dressed in a towel, and we're pretending like, oh, yeah, uh, Violet and I were just fucking in the shower. That's why we took so long to answer the doorbell and all this other stuff. And this is really Joey Pants's time to shine where he's trying to not look guilty. He's so paranoid that Mickey is going to be able to lockpick this briefcase and realize there's no $2 million in there. And meanwhile, he's got Violet calling him on the fucking phone being like, pretend it's Gino and also give me half the money. This is even if you thought for a second, oh, maybe Violet isn't like that good at all this. This is when you're kind of like, oh, shit. Bitch is in control. She's really yes. good at this. <laughs> <laughs> I also like whenever like uh, he tells Mickey like, "Oh yeah, she was gonna relax me in the shower." Mickey's just like, "That Violet is one nice lady." <laughs> <laughs> but like, you have Violet that's like, "Listen, bitch, this is how it's gonna work. Tell me you understand." And you just have yeah. Pantaleano's delivery of, "Yes, I understand." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Now he's the one reading from the from the the cue card, right? Yes, I understand. Yes, I will get rid of Mickey. Yeah, she'd make a great ghost face. Like that's the thing is like right. the ebbs, the ebbs and flows, and like the pacing of the movie. Like there's very few ebbs. Is the ebb the downward one? Yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but as soon as you think it's like, okay, well, where else is this going to go? This shit kind of happens. And you're like, fuck, mm-hmm. I'm like really amped up again. Yes, it gets you right back into it. Like for me, this is all gold stuff because yeah. I kind of didn't expect to see Mickey again or or I thought we were going to get some kind of wild shootout. And this feels more playful. This is more mastermind. And I think it's in part because we do get to see, again, a different side of Violet where she is so firmly in control. Yeah, 100%. So just like the cops, we managed to finally eventually convince Mickey to leave. It's a minor miracle. But then we're right back where we started. Caesar is back in control because he's got the gun. He's got both women at gunpoint. But... This is where Violet makes a break for it. So she runs down the hall, down the stairs. Caesar has to chase her. Corky manages to free herself using said clippers. And then it's about double backing to Corky's apartment. We've already discovered that's where the money is. Okay, but wait. Okay, so Violet, you know, running down these stairs, she gets the elevator. Um, mm-hmm. There's a really cute Tricks moment from, <laughs> from Jennifer Tilly. When Pantaleano, like gets down the stairs and he's in the hallway and he turns and he sees Violet in the elevator, Jennifer Tilly mm-hmm. does this little hop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then she calls Mickey. This, honestly, this is probably my favorite like comedic beat in the movie. It's when she calls mm-hmm. Mickey and she's like, oh my 
god, Mickey! Oh my god, he tried, he tried to get me!" And then she just goes, "Oh my god, he's coming!" And she hangs up, and her demeanor changes yeah. because she's like, "Oh, that was just an act." Yeah. <laughs> Performance is Oscar. over. I can just revert back uh, to give normal. Her the Oscar. It's yeah. so good. <laughs> like Tilly is on fire in all of these scenes. I mean, I also think that this is designed just in case you thought, "Okay, the women are good. All we have to do is get out of this situation, get away from Caesar." Everything Violet is doing is cueing us to say, ooh, but is she trustworthy? Because look at how easily she slips in and out of performance mode. Mm. How do we know she hasn't been doing this to Corky as well? Yeah. So we end up back in Corky's apartment. The money is there, but also like it's been moved because Corky has managed to free herself. Joey Pants is in there, but he doesn't have a gun anymore. Both the women have guns. Okay. And we it, take turns lighting this motherfucker up. It, the, okay. It, it's like a half a second shot, but the shot of the gun rolling and twirling through the paint and spraying mm-hmm. like, like almost like watercoloring paint across the floor yep. is possibly one of my favorite shots in cinema history. I love the way this looks. <laughs> Well, and it echoes, echo, echoes the blood in the toilet. Like it, it's mm-hmm. just like the the blood contrasts with the white. That overhead shot, yeah, they shoot his ass, and yeah, just blood all over this white ass paint. It's so, oh god, this mm-hmm. it, it does suck though because the moment where she kills him, where she's like Caesar, you don't know shit. That's a trailer moment. Oh no, is it? Yeah, if you watch the trailer, it's at the end of the trailer where he's like, I know you, and he's like, she's like, you don't know shit, and then she pulls the trigger, but then the gun sound happens and it cuts to the title card, bound, bound, coming soon. <laughs> a theater near you <laughs> yeah honestly trailer people <laughs> yeah it's such a mafioso death too you know what i mean it's like something mm-hmm. it truly Godfather. is it's just so dramatic the score swelling for all of this i mean the score really it's a great score but it really kicks in during all of these <laughs> climactic moments yeah. yeah it's the horse head in the bed and then it's joey yep. pants blood in the white paint <laughs> <laughs> um so basically that that is the end of Caesar. So um, we just have to patch things up with Mickey, make our excuses to leave the mafia behind. Mickey is totally like, you know what? I'm going to find Caesar. I'll track him down. Don't you worry. You're sweet. You're cute. And <laughs> Violet's like, cool. I'm going to go fuck my girlfriend in her brand new truck that we bought with that two million. <laughs> Peace out, movie. Happy ending for these lesbians. She's a lady. Whoa, whoa, whoa. She's a lady. Ah, so, like, just the glee. I feel Glee is the only way to describe how I feel watching this movie. It's just so much fun. Absolutely. And especially the end. You're just like, oh, fucking good for them. It's so well, nice. Because you don't expect it, right? I mean, like, look, we've, ta- we've talked all. plenty on this podcast about, like, queer stories. And, like, you know, usually they don't, especially this time period, they don't always end happily. No, bury your gaze. It's so unexpected. It's so unexpected. It's like, oh, they get away with it. They get their $2 million richer. I hope they invested it well and they're still living well today. But I will say this, though. So apparently they have been, they have tried to make a bound sequel several times. No. And, but no. the thing, when I say they... I don't mean the Wachowskis and of scripts like like Gina Gershon and Jennifer Tilly have been handed a script for Bound 2 in the past. But their first question is, are the Wachowskis involved? And the second they are told no, they're like, OK, we're not doing yeah, this. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, I could also see this being getting the wild things treatment, you know, where they just buy the rights to the title yeah. and they do like direct mm-hmm. VOD. Like, I'm surprised they didn't do that, happen. actually. Yeah. Because yeah. they could just do you could just do other lesbians, <laughs> you know. They could just yeah, other lesbians are all the same. <laughs> yeah, in in name only, you know what I mean. It's just like there's another lesbian thriller. 
Mm-hmm. Here's I, the thing. I, if this movie had have done well, I yeah. think we probably would have gone that route, right? Because this is two years before Wild Things. Like, this this absolutely would have been DTV sequels, two or three of them, right? Mm-hmm. But I think because it didn't do well, and then it gains a cult audience, it's like, oh, well, the timing is lost. So now it's just going to be cheap cash-ins, but they know that the audience won't respect them. So maybe that's why no one's pulled the trigger. And that's why I employ... Y'all, if you have made it this far in this episode and you have not seen this film, and if you just know this as... What the fuck are you doing? Well, again, the thing is, I still... I still feel like some people just think of this as, oh, yeah, it's that lesbian movie with Gina Gershon and Jennifer Tilly. And again, it is that, mm-hmm. but it's so much more than that. Like, give this movie a watch. Good Lord. Well, like, Roger Ebert called it pure cinema because it's like every yeah. element is just embraces the medium to its fullest. Yeah. So if you'll permit me, I'd like to have one final, we can keep it brief, conversation. No, no, but I do think we need to address how... This film was initially received by people talking about, oh, it's two, as you said, Trace, two cis men who are evoking like a male gaze on a lesbian text and so on. Right. And how we now have reappraised the film from a trans female perspective. So I want to bring in a new person just for this final part. So I'm going to reference trans uh, writer Drew Burnett Gregory, who wrote Bound is a trans classic for Autostraddle. And here's the quote, and then we can maybe have a conversation. So Because revisiting Bound through the lens of the Wachowskis' transness doesn't mean erasing their identities at the time, it means acknowledging them. Bound isn't just a masterful lesbian film made by two queer trans women, it's a masterful lesbian film made by two queer trans women before they came out. That's an intrinsic part of the film. Bound doesn't even exist without the specific narrative of Lily and Lana's transitions. You think even a cis queer woman would have gotten the financing to make Bound as her first feature? Absolutely not. (laughs) So often as trans people, we mourn the years we lost, but here's the cause to celebrate. Bound is one of the great Trojan horses in cinema history. And the reason I like that is because I think sometimes especially within the queer community, we're very quick to gatekeep about like who gets to tell our stories, who gets to play us on screen, who gets to make these movies and so on. And I think, you know, there's, I don't want to say there's a danger in doing that because this is an example where, you know, oh, well, it was men. I'm using scare quotes for all of the fucking transphobes out there (laughs) making this movie. And then it's like, oh, well, all you had to do was wait a decade or two. And then suddenly these are trans filmmakers and we can look at it differently. But I think we just we need to be cautious about the idea that gender and sexuality. And I know those are two very different concepts. But they're not fixed, right? Like people do change, they evolve, and sometimes they get things right, and sometimes they get it wrong, particularly within their art. But like, it's it's exciting to get to go back and reevaluate the Wachowski sisters' filmography through a trans lens. But it also doesn't negate the way that we would have talked about it back then, and so on. Like, I don't know if I'm making sense. No, no, but... no, no, no. no. I, I, I'll try to respond because I, I. I... I agree. It's like what Gwyneth Turner was saying in her article where she's like, I, I liked this movie, but begrudgingly because of who made this film. And mm-hmm. while I understand those complaints or the, the, those concerns, I'm kind of like, yeah, okay, but let, let's say hypothetically, the Wachowskis never came out and they were, these were two cisgender men making this movie, but they did get 95% of the things right. This was a very authentic lesbian film. And so 
I guess while I understand having the conversations about what that means, I'm also mm-hmm. kind of like, but they did it either means a clearly they did their work, they did their research or whatever. As obviously now we know they maybe had more personal insight into the feminine lifestyle or uh, God right. lifestyle, whatever. Then the, 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 the just life, yeah, <laughs> life. But nevertheless, it, it doesn't change the fact that we have this amazingly, explicitly fun, queer, great, authentic lesbian film, regardless of who made it or the background of who made it. Yeah, no, I think it's really you know, for a long time, it's like any time that we can acknowledge trans filmmakers is amazing mm-hmm. because there's so few and yes. um and it always feels like we're breaking new ground for trans stories and trans mm-hmm. creators and to have to ha- all of a sudden be like oh wait it was done in 1996 we just didn't know it i think mm-hmm. it's really powerful because one i just i i mourn the life that they could have had if they right. you know yeah could have been out then and had the support they came out so late in their life but that's why even saying mm-hmm. that we're like again I, th- I think i think it was lily who was tra- in the process of transitioning during this film making process yeah i think it was because she I, I believe it's, it was her who like basically set them this the, for them to have a happy ending in this film, that was the mission statement. That was the reason to make this right. film. Was to ha- to make a gender, I mean, a genre picture that ends with the queers winning um, mm-hmm. and having having a happy ending. And in a way, that's like the Wachowskis got a happy ending for themselves. themselves. Too. It, yeah. it happened really late, but that's you know, as as someone who transitioned late in life. Also, like I, I just turned forty, and it's only been a few years of transitioning. Um, mm-hmm. It's like I put a, a lot of bad shit happened for me, and I never thought I was ever going to see forty. But now that I'm here, living happy, and I'm like, you know, all that shit was worth it. You know what I mean? Like even if right. I just experienced this happiness for one day, it was still worth it. And so, I just think it's it. It also goes to show that you never know what someone's going through. Um, yeah and you, you know and so it's like no this this was here the whole time and there's still a lot of because it was basically you know the, the film was made no one knowing that there were trans is right. is how now that it's like this film you know we can look back and go wow these trans filmmakers made it in 1996 but if you if you don't have that context or you think about where we're at now it's like impossible like there's such few trans filmmakers who are working Mm -hmm. at this level you know what i mean it's like it's almost like we only unearth this as if like a trojan horse it was like wow they kind of snuck this one by because if they didn't it would have never been made and these type of projects still aren't getting made i i actually wonder okay so maybe this is opening up another avenue of this conversation but do you think the fact that they were again at the time cisgender white men made it easier to get this movie made as opposed to had they been out as trans women at the time i don't think this movie would have gotten made not at all if if they were anyone other than white cisgender men (laughs) at that time maybe even now i like think about it have we gotten a film i don't know maybe i'll put this back out to the out into the atmosphere have we gotten a film that even compares to this 
Sensebound was released. And I even wonder, too, I mean, look, because I, I, I truthfully, I actually don't know much about the, the process of their transitions, respectively, like, in, like when they decided to do certain things, blah, blah, blah. But I, a part of me is wondering, like, how long did they hold off on being out with it because of the privilege their cisgenderness gave them in the industry? Uh, I don't know about that. Um, well, sorry, I, I don't mean like a malicious intent, but it's like, oh, th- they weren't comfortable <sighs> oh, com- coming okay. out they with didn't it feel be- because they knew, they, they knew the opportunities they would lose if they did come out. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, I've I've got yeah. the dates here, so uh, this is according to the internet, but it says Lana identifies as trans in 2010, and Lily officially comes out in 2016. And the only movie they make after that, they do uh, Cloud Atlas in 2012, then Jupiter Ascending, and then it's just Lana who does Matrix Revolutions. Um, right. So I, I, so I, I sorry, I mean that from a more like a sad point of view, yes. where it's like, yeah, oh, yeah. like how long do they keep this bottled up? For fear of what it would mean if when if they actually came out, you know, which is a common experience for all trans people in whatever context, you know, their careers and lives and relationships are, you know, even right. like I remember when I first started realizing, like, no, I really am going to have to figure this out and come out. I'm like, I married a gay man. <laughs> what is that going to yeah. mean? You know, it's like every aspect of your life right. becomes like, is this something I'm going to lose? Yeah, you have to explode it potentially just to be who you fucking are. Yeah. yeah. And so it's just, I'm so grateful to them for, for having pulled this off at all and, and that we yeah. have this today. Yeah. Exactly. And that we are still talking about it today. I mean, like, it's not just us. Like, everyone, so people are still discovering this movie, which makes me so happy. I just can't wait till, like, everyone knows this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, like, knows it like, has seen it, not just knows it as that lesbian movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because it is a, a great gateway to film noir too because it's like all right if you watch this film go back mm-hmm. and watch double indemnity mm-hmm. um and the treasure of sarah madre and it, there's just like a whole like new world for you if, if you if the thrills and the suspense of this film and and like the the cinematic language works for you then it's like mm-hmm. this is a great gateway to go yeah. back into to to experience some really incredible films yeah absolutely agreed well all right everyone that has been bound and before we announce what we're covering next week uh Kay, first thank you so much for coming on to this it's been a pleasure having you on again but let everyone know where can they find you on social media well, my pleasure, Trace. Ah! Um, <laughs> Service me, please. Yeah. I'm just like, there's a drinking game. If you go back and listen to the number of times that Kay and I snuck that word in after Trace said it. <laughs> Gross. Have fun. I, I, cr- I, I like, physically cringed every time. We, we never once said moist. This is true. Oh, that's fine. I can take boys. (laughs) (laughs) Ten people just died. (laughs) Yeah, so I apologize. Um, So uh, you can find me on Instagram at Video Coven and Salem Horror Fest on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, And I just wanted to uh, also mention I'm really excited to um, be back on the show, but especially to talk about this film, because um, in November, um, as creative director of the cinema in Salem, um, I am hosting a series for Noir Vember. We're going to be doing film noir films throughout the month. And the theme is Femme Noir. And so all of the films... 
are are focused on the woman of film noir. And so we have Gilda and Laura and Mildred Pierce and Rebecca and Mulholland Drive and Bound. And so if you're in the area, if you're in the region, like we'd love to to have you come and experience some really great filmmaking on the big screen. That's amazing. Yes. Uh, Well, yes. Please, everyone, if you're in Salem, go watch that shit. (laughs) Or Boston. Yeah, we're close. Right. Yeah, yeah, or Boston, yeah. (laughs) Or if you just want to, like, just walk there. Make a road trip. (laughs) Yeah. Look, Salem is on everyone's bucket list, and you you both now can say that you've been here. Oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. no. As everyone knows, we went there for Salem Horror Fest last year to do our live show on The Hitcher, and um, honestly, um, it's an adorable little town. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Good food. Good, yes. It oh is. God. So hit me up if you're if anyone out there comes to Salem, whether it's in context of this or not. Like, hit me up, video governor on Instagram. I'll give you some good recommendations. We can hang out. I always love to meet new queer people in our little city. Well, y'all are gonna all think I'm fucking with you, but I swear to God, get steak tips wherever oh you go because every, steak tips. <laughs> everywhere in Salem seems to know how to make amazing. It's like a thing up there. I don't know why. I've only had steak tips from IHOP, but. <laughs> <laughs> but every place we went in Salem had steak oh, tips, and I was like, "All right," and they are the best fucking thing I've ever had in my life. <laughs> I can honestly say that's a new one for me. I've never heard someone right? say okay. that about. But hey, the Lit- is great. Hey, literally, I was like, "Why does everyone have steak tips here?" And then uh, someone said, "Oh, it's just a thing for this part of the country." And I was like, "Okay, <laughs> okay, all right, wrap it up, wrap it up, wrap it up." <laughs> Anyway, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers. And tune in once a month to hear about our most anticipated horror films for that month. If you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. And if you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to hear more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. If you subscribe today, you'll get about 263 hours of Patreon content, including this month's new episodes on A Haunting in Venice, the next installment in Kenneth Branagh's Hercule Poirot series, The Nun 2, as well as two audio commentaries, one on Underworld to celebrate its 20th anniversary, and one on Saw 2 to coincide with the release of Saw 10. And we will also have a special episode on The Voyeurs to coincide with this month's main feed theme on erotic thrillers jesus christ okay so i'm gonna edit that and next week i'm gonna do it and it'll be done in 10 seconds oh my god Ah! (laughs) (laughs) fuck you um joe (laughs) so overwritten (laughs) what are we talking about i I, I can just list the movies instead of saying what they are (laughs) i'll cut out the hercule poirot stuff (laughs) joe Yes. What are we covering next week to conclude our erotic thriller month? Yes, I'm not promising we will never cover another erotic thriller. It's just the end of four straight titles. But uh, we saved the gayest one for last, Trace. So we are going to go international because the French do it best. So we're going to check out Stranger by the Lake. Oh, boy. I... First time watch for me. I am very excited to watch this. <laughs> oh my goodness. Sexy, sex, sex. Trace, you're going to love it. That, that, I, I have been primed. I know it's a slow burn, but I've heard about all the sexy sex sex. Mm-hmm. 
Well, anyway, until next week, we can cross out once and for all, Bound. Indeed. And cross out Horror Queers. Horror Queers.